To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. This is episode 308 of The Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at uncut gems in 1917, as well as go over the week in movie news and movie trailers. All that and more, this episode starts right now. What is going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Real Me In, colon, a movie podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. And uh, if you were tuning to, into this podcast for the very first time, you decided to take a chance on us because you wanted to listen to a great film podcast to start your year out in 2020, uh, I think you hit the right spot. This is the jackpot for you. I think you're going to really enjoy us. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation and just what we have to offer. So thank you for taking a chance on us if you are new. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. We always appreciate you guys. You guys are the best. As stated at the top, this is episode 308. We will be going over some of 2019 leftovers um, as we get uh, you know kind of hyped up for award season. And also, I don't think uh, Joel really wanted to talk about The Grudge this week. So we're going to talk about uh, some better films. <laughs> um, I didn't see The Grudge, uh, but you know Joel can kind of lead you into that conversation. But you know it's nice to kind of uh, go over some movies that we may, may have missed in the main 2019 episodes and uh, kind of recap them here, especially when one of them is opening wide soon. One of them's getting really great, you know, praise and, uh, you know, box office acclaim right now. So it's just nice to kind of go over that. So, yes, we'll be going over Uncut Gems in 1917 as our conversation uh, pieces for this episode, uh, 1917 being first, and then we'll uh, uh, do the news trailers and go end off with Uncut Gems. So, before I throw it over to my co-host, asking him how his New Year's uh, day and eve uh, was, um, if you guys could spread this episode around and let people know this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to, we would really appreciate it. And if you were curious, we are on a lot of platforms, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, uh, Podbean, I think, Deezer. I mean, we're all over the place. If you search in uh, Real Me In, um you can definitely find it. So if you're looking for a specific platform to listen on, we got you covered. Joseph, this is our first episode of 2020. The year is upon us, the new year. Uh, you started, you know, permanently in, what, 2017? So yes. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of crazy that we have reached another year. Um, so it is the year the 2020. Last, the last weekend I'm kind of going to consider it the last weekend of March will be my three year anniversary in terms of when our show, when we do our shows and what weekends they fall on. It was the last weekend uh, or the re releases for the last weekend of March. I think I technically started officially as, you know, official co-host in, uh, in April of 2017, but it was like April 1st or 2nd or something. It was right after it was, you know, ghost in the shell and the boss baby that we reviewed. Now, 
of course I had done like shows before that, but that was the first one where we introduced me as co-host. And um, so, so and on I a scale of one to stuff. ten, how much regret and how much time do you think you've wasted in your life uh, on this show? About seventy billion hours. I'm okay, kidding. that's why. That's why I thought it was around that number. Um, but uh, yes, uh, so much regret and so much time wasted on your end. But you continue to do it, and we appreciate it. But uh, how was um, how was your New Year's Eve? Uh, do you do you guys celebrate that? How was your New Year's Day? And uh, what was your what was your week like, man? Well, uh, just because of stuff outside the outside the film world um on new year's eve i worked we 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 closed a little early so but i did close and uh because of just everything i didn't get out until like 10 o'clock i think um or maybe i got home at 10 o'clock and by that time my mom because of the events of the day which i won't get into um was already exhausted and went to bed so i didn't i didn't ring in the new year with my parents but um but on New Year's Day, which I had off, um, I just sat around <laughs> and uh, we had we had breakfast with with my brother and sister in law that day. But other than that, um, I just sat around watching. And yes, you're going to say, of course you did, monk episodes. Um, of course you did. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the best. It's the best thing to watch when you're just when you have nothing to do and and uh, and you took the day off and. Um, because I think our original plan was we were going to go out to this place in Dallas called the Gaylord Hotel, um, but then we we ended up not doing that because it's expensive to park and we didn't we didn't want to do that. So we just kind of stayed home and I camped out upstairs, <laughs> kind of just watching stuff. And my parents were uh, I think taking out taking taking down Christmas decorations or something. And anyway, so it was it was a nice little lazy day. Um, I didn't. I didn't watch too much this week. I did. I, I am starting to catch up with the the James Bond movies I haven't seen, which are a lot of them. Uh, so I've only watched one. I'm, I'm. I am watching two tomorrow, but I I'm only watching one, or I only watched one this week. Goldfinger, which is kind of remembered to be one of the best. Uh, it's the third one with uh, with Sean Connery, and uh, it's fantastic. A lot of fun. So I'm I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, I think that I have 16 more movies to see in 14 weeks, and I I think I can do that. I think I can do that. Uh, it's it's really just two tomorrow, two to two the following Sunday, and then one per week after that point. And I generally have time like that. So I um doing that, and then yes, I I did see the Grudge. Uh, not only the first release of the new year, but the first release of the new decade. Um, so landmark, you know, twice in a row and it was bad, 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 <laughs> terrible, terrible movie. Now I understand why it's a January you know, third release because it is really bad. Um, I'm glad that we are not talking about that. I'm glad that you did not see it because man, uh, I mean, I know that you were, you were kind of sick within this last week and coming off of that, I'm sure that there was a lot of like that post sick fatigue. I always have that at least. And I fear that you would have fallen asleep in it because it's it's boring. It's not scary. Well, and, and you know all that told, it's all told at a pace of just like crazy slowness. You know, mm -hmm. it just it's it's not even deliberate. It's just slow. It's just it's just it's just slow and it's well, bad. And, and it's, I, I was gonna say like you know me and the misses we love horror films. Like we'll go see all yeah. of them. But she was just like, eh, I'll just stay home this week. <laughs> <laughs> right and. um 
yeah, this is not worth going out to the theater for. Trust me. Uh, I let's just say I already have I, now. Of course, I basically have twelve months left. I mean, there's only been one weekend. I can't even say that we have eleven months left in the year. But um, but it, so who knows if it's actually going to stay on my top ten worst? But it's certainly bad enough to be included on on a list of the worst. I'll just say that. Like it's, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised either way if it leaves just because I see a bunch of bad movies, or if it stays because. Even though I see a bunch of bad movies, this one kind of sticks with me as a particularly bad one because it's, you know, I give it like a D maybe, uh, something like that. If we were reviewing it, it's it's pretty awful. And you can go see that review now uh, on my website. I guess I'll just plug that now. You can see reviews for that, The Hidden Life, um, which either I or we are going to be getting into next week. And then um, it'll the definitely be both of us, by the way. Okay, good, yes. good. So. Um, so yeah, and then the two popes uh, is another one that I reviewed. So um, you can go see my reviews for those now. And yes, I did. I did review the Grudge. I'm going to be more um, proactive towards new releases in the, in this this year. So uh, I I kind of had to see this, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was bad. It was bad. So I guess the good thing is I wrote my review in like 35 minutes, and that includes editing. I just I just cranked it out because it was all basically in my head by the time I got home, and it was just a matter of putting it in a Word document and then doing my thing with uh, putting it on the website. So, yeah, um, good, good, uh, not good, but uh, uh, a nice little start to the year in terms of you know getting reviews out on time. But uh, I, I think I think I got you beat. Yeah, uh, really, I, I have you beat. In uh, um, my new, my I guess first film of 2020 uh, pick of the litter, um, hung out with the friends, and you know we, you know keep this podcast PG. We drink a bunch of cider, uh, <laughs> dr- drink a bunch of cider throughout the entire night. It was uh, ciderific, as uh, one would put. Um, but then we went back to uh, my friend's house, and uh, you know it was, it was well into 2020 at this point. We, you know, fell asleep, woke up, and we're like, well, what? What bad movie do we want to watch today? And I'm sure people are just like, you know, pick stuff like Cats or, you know, something um, recently. But we went on uh, Amazon Prime. Now, Amazon Prime is littered with a bunch of stuff that no one watches. And mm-hmm. so uh, my friend's wife look, looked up online, what are some of the worst movies on Amazon Prime? So we came across one of them, and... It was so bad that it wasn't even enjoyable. Like, it was just straight up bad. Like, we couldn't even laugh. And, like, there were certain parts that were over the top and kind of funny, but it wasn't like a, like the room situation where it's like, that movie is just a gem all the way through. This one is called Terror at Blood Fart Lake. And if you think I'm making that up, I want you to go on Amazon Prime, look it up, and don't watch it because you're going to waste an hour and ten minutes of your life. But... um it's pretty wild. Now, that's not what the crazy part was. The crazy part was because the movie was so bad. Like, I just, we had to look up these filmmakers and these actors. It's like, why would you be a part of this? It looks like someone shot it on their phone at some, um, you know, camps, Camp Lake site, you know, within a, a weekend. So, like, that's how cheap it is. But these, these people I, that made I the, just found it on Letterboxd. Right. It's, it's crazy. It's like, that's a thing that exists. And, um, you'll understand why it's called that, uh, in, in the, I guess final death of the movie. It's bizarre. Um, but uh, yeah, we looked up the filmmakers and the cast and everything, and they make 
parody movies. That's what they do. And they're very low budget. It's actually called low budget pictures or productions. Like they are very open and blatant about like what they do. But this one was just terrible. Like it just wasn't even enjoyably funny and bad. It was just straight up bad. Do, so we do they do they have the sequel return to Blood Fart Lake? I think they do. We we, okay. we saw it, we're like, oh my god, there's a sequel to this? Like <laughs> it's wild, man. And and so we were um looking into their uh filmography and like they made fun of Twilight and called it Taint Light. Like it's just I'm like, what are these guys? And believe it or not, the the Taint Light one, if you watch the trailer on YouTube, I think, like it looks it, like it could be decent. It looks way better than Vampire suck, uh, you know that wonderful Twilight parody that we got uh, with, with the good graces of <laughs> Freeberg and Seltzer. But um, yeah, it was just we went down this rabbit hole of like looking up these people and like what have they made and like they made some other weird stuff. Like it's it's wild. But that's what we, that was the first movie I watched this year was Terror wow. at Blood Fart Lake. And we we actually didn't watch the whole thing. We just kind of skimmed it and kind of. You know, fast forward every 30 seconds through some of the boarding parts because trust me, you don't really, you can get the gist of everything. But yeah, it was crazy. Um, So I apologize. That's the first thing I watched. And uh, no, I will not be reviewing it because uh, it is impossible to review. Um, It's like an, it's like a, maybe an F minus minus if I had to <laughs> put, put a, put a grade stamp on that. But yeah, we did that. And then uh, uh we watched The Witcher. Um, the, the Henry Cavill, um, Netflix show that's super expensive. Um, this is kind of their, their Game of Thrones project that they want to put on their site and hopefully they can get a bunch of people and seeing the numbers, um, compared to stuff like the Mandalorian, it's doing very well for Netflix. So, you know, this is a nice little, uh, jumpstart in, uh, of Cavill's career after, um, I'm assuming, you know, you know, it's really hard to get work after the disastrous Justice League in terms of, expectations and um box office return all that stuff so it's nice to see him kind of bounce back from that but yeah we just watched the witcher um and of course saul and this is a great segue joel we saw 1917 last night you know um i had three opportunities to see it last year missed them all <laughs> so uh <laughs> we saw it at the um our amc here in dallas because it's only playing in two theaters in dallas until it opens wide next week but uh joel wanted to review it this week so we're like well you know, we because uh, we were sick and we were like, ah, you know, we skipped it last week and then on uh, yesterday while I was at work, she was like, let's see 1917 tonight. I was like, perfect. And then I texted Joel, Joel, we're gonna both talk about it. He's like, cool. So it was like it was happening all all at once. But um, yeah, Joel, let's talk about it, man. 1917. Yeah. So this this movie, I saw this about a month a month and two a month and two days ago because I saw it on Monday, December second. Um, so yeah, this is the new movie from director Sam Mendes, uh, who previously brought us films like American Beauty and Skyfall. Um, this is, it's interesting that we're reviewing this in Uncut Gems later, later on in the show. Um, <clears throat> because these two kind of represent at least two of the most stressful experiences at the movies this year. Um, so we'll we'll get into into uncut gems a little later on, but for now we're going to review 1917. Uh, this, like I said, comes from Sam Mendes. It was co written by him with uh, Christy Wilson Cairns, and it tells the story of a couple of brothers uh, who are in World War One. Uh, they're both uh, lieutenant corporals in World War One. 
uh, who are sent on a mission by their by the commanding officer of the whole fleet, uh, played by Colin Firth, in a series of um, one scene cameos from uh, recognizable actors, uh, who basically tells them there's an attack that we have planned, but the Germans on the opposite side of the uh, the conflict have recognized the fact that this is going to be a an attack and they have set up a trap for us and that includes your brother uh, lieutenant Cor- corporal blake L- lieutenant colonel sorry colonel not corporal uh, <laughs> sorry about that colonel lieutenant colonel blake um <clears throat> who is played by dean charles uh dean charles chapman um the other one is uh schofield played by george mckay and um they have to go off and uh, warn the 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 commander of that particular fleet, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, that uh, that everything could just wind up being a, a huge mess. Um, they could lose sixteen hundred men, and they have to avoid that. So um, the gimmick here has been kind of a little bit um, confused in the in the different points of marketing uh people are calling this the one take movie uh it definitely is i think meant to be potentially one take but at one point and i won't really reveal anything someone gets knocked out and we do cut so this for for all intents and purposes i'm going to call this the two take movie because um mendez and cinematographer roger deakins and editor lee smith all uh present this story as basically the camera never cuts right so this is where i think that the um uh that the effect of the film is most important and i you know i mentioned this movie on one of our last episodes as being a, an honorable mention right outside my list of the best films of the year um and i think that at the at the core of it is the fact that I, th- I think the movie really does communicate war as a roller coaster. And it's at this point that I would like to compare it or, or talk about it in the context of Dunkirk, um, a movie that came out a few years ago um, and was kind of also uh, premised on a gimmick of sorts. And that one wasn't a single take. It was a bunch of different um, – timelines leading to the same event which was the evacuation of those men from that uh, particular beach and um uh and so it was a gimmick it was a gimmick but like dunkirk i think that what 1917 does really well is it uh it elevates itself above the gimmick um this is this has been called by those people who aren't so pleased with the uh the final product as being basically just literally a Call of Duty or a um, uh, what's the other one? Medal of Honor kind of cutscene, and uh, it makes sense, I guess, if you're gonna redu- if you're gonna be reductive about the movie because we are pretty consistently following following behind characters as they achieve a goal and they're holding weapons and you can imagine you're you're the one in control of them. Um, but that's an easy way of looking at it. I think that uh, a video game, as much as video games are, are especially those, are very effective. Um, 
sometimes in terms of um, uh, presenting a war setting. This one, I think, is a little grimmer than your typical video game cutscene. Uh, we follow these two men as they travel through some of the worst terrain of the war. We see them crawl over bodies. We see them try to pass through, at one point, barbed wire. We see them um, barely escaping and p potentially not escaping uh, a giant plane crash by a barn. That's uh, the best scene in the movie, I think. Um, and we get we get the horrors of war. It's just that the, that Mendez and Smith never cut away from that, uh, so that it's pretty overwhelming. And like I said, this is a stressful stressful uh, experience. But man, does it work! And I think that it's only partly because of that that this is an exhilarating experience. Again, I think that there's a that there's a um, uh, a sort of a subverting of expectations here. Almost, we are introduced to the gimmick pretty early on in this opening scene, uh, but it isn't it isn't opening in mid combat, which I think is what people will be anticipating of this movie. And I think that maybe Chase can agree with me here that in a in a movie in a situation like this where it's you know been kind of advertised as um, as one take. You're going to anticipate that, of course, they're going to open mid-story, right? That's that's what you would think they would do, uh, especially because of the video game comparison. You would think that they would they would open mid-story and then continue from there. But no, they open on a sun-dappled day. These two um, soldiers are resting. They're just dozing in the sun, taking a break from the combat, from the, uh, from the conflict, and then they're sent on this mission, so they stand up and they they start walking, and they keep walking, and it doesn't cut. They the camera is in front of them, tracking backward as they are walking toward the barracks and um, or the uh, the headquarters, kind of the main office, uh, if you will, of the of the front. And uh, then they're sent to the real front, which is the the which is their um, uh, which is their mission, and we never cut and it's of course many cuts put together by smith uh who and and uh you know visual effects artists who kind of go in and splice things that are you know passing in front of the camera to uh to hide the fact that there are not cuts or that there are cuts um and it's really effective i mean occasionally you can you can pretty clearly tell where a cut is especially if you're if you're well versed in this kind of thing but again, I think that it kind of falls away because the main um, uh, concern becomes communicating this particular uh, difficult mission, especially because – and I won't give anything away uh, yet again. Um, the story turns. The story turns. It becomes eventually focused on one of these men um, and – then it enters this second half that's genuinely even more stressful than anything else we've had <laughs> we've had to see before then. Um, and then we get the knockout moment, and everything after the knockout, when when he wakes back up, 
is absolutely just some of the best stuff I saw in a movie last year. Uh, particularly a scene uh, when he's just woken up and he's in the middle of this this uh, bombed out city and that's on fire, and he's running through trying to figure out where where he is and where to go and where and how to avoid the the um, uh, the German insurgents. That scene is insane. It's incredible. Uh, and then everything after that, from uh, you know until he meets Benedict Cumberbatch's character, is just thrilling. It's thrilling, it's suspenseful, um, and it is just a ride, a true ride. And I don't, and, and and it's weird because I feel like every time I say something like the ultimate, the ultimate um, uh, compliment that I can give this movie is that it's an exhilarating roller coaster. I I try not, I try to you know clarify. I don't mean that as it's just a roller coaster. It's also about these two men. Um, even if we don't, you know, get a sense of them outside of the story because it's all one take, we can't really do that. That would, that would mess with perspective. Um, it is about these two men, um, and the toll that it takes on them, this mission, which is really just a few miles long, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of the length of the walk. I mean, it's a, a few miles relatively speaking, of course, but it is, uh, it's not a very, it's not a very far walk or transit, uh, you know, point, um, it isn't very far away, but it is quite the journey. It's, it's quite the experience to sit here watching this, you know, almost single take, uh, experiment, um, of presenting war as this kind of roller coaster of, you know, lulls where they're just walking and big crescendos, or, you know, highs, peaks where, uh, something insane is happening, and uh, like that barn scene, which has um, incredible consequences, and uh, all of that, it is truly exciting. And in terms of just this, the simple presentation of filmmaking craft, there were few things that were more impress- impressive last year. Didn't make my list just because I had other ones. Uh, this one, there is a little bit of of a coldness, a precision to. The fact that they're presenting it this way, maybe that that's what kept it from my list. But in a slightly weaker year, it might have been on there. And, and in fact, um, Dunkirk was on my list, and that sort of had a same the same uh, um, same feeling la- uh, that year. Maybe it was just because 2017 was overall weaker than last year was. But whatever the case, 1917, it's exhilarating. It's great. Um, it's one that you know. I don't know. I don't know how quickly I want to watch it again. Uh, it's not an easy watch, especially because we do see a lot of the carnage here. It's it's presented with meticulous detail, especially by the uh, the makeup effects artists and the production design artists um, to recreate this uh, this period of time on these beaches and on these uh, terrains and on these hills and dales. It's pretty insane it's pretty it's pretty incredible uh particularly the barn that they that they find um and the um uh the moments that that transpire from that sort of such as Chekhov's milk (laughs) I don't know if anybody knows what Chekhov's means but it's basically something that's introduced and then paid off later on and this does that there's a um uh there's a bit with milk that that pays off and uh 
yeah, it's it's just great. It's a great movie of little moments, big gigantic action sequences. It's a it's a little overwhelming sometimes, but if if you are a war movie person and this hasn't opened for you yet uh, because it's coming out next week for you, which is the case for almost everybody right now, definitely keep this one in your back pocket. You will not be sorry. It's a fantastic movie. It's a fantastic war movie. I'm definitely giving this an A. I also should say that the performances are all good. Um, it's not a movie about performances, though. Uh, I think that Benedict Cumberbatch is the best one-scene person, and I think that uh, both of these leads, McKay and Chapman, are, are both quite good. Uh, but again, it's not a movie about performances, hence I didn't really mention them until now, because uh, it's not really on your mind uh, in the movie or after it, uh, even if they are very good. It's really mostly about this kind of overall journey, this overall presentation of this this gimmick and this story, um, and, and how it, uh, elevates the gimmick and it's, uh, it is fantastic. So definitely an A for me. Um, I'm going to say it. I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, and you should all definitely give this one a shot. So that is my review of 1917. Chase, take it away. Good, sir. Yeah. So this is, this is interesting because you saw it, you know, a long time ago. I literally saw it last night and it's, um, it's a crazy movie, man, because it is – I think it is a disservice to say it's just a video game cutscene or it's like a video game. Like it's just that, – that, just, that to me just seems really disrespectful to what I just watched because it was wholly impressive. Like I – like it, it wouldn't make my top 10, um, but I, I am comfortable saying it would definitely be a top 20 from last year if I saw it in time. So to start out with saying uh, uh, saying this about the one-shot kind of gimmick, I think it actually works really well for this movie um, because of the fact that we have a setting in war and, you know, war is all about that roller coaster of kind of unpredictability and um, the tagline that's on the poster, time is our enemy, that's also true. I mean, these guys are sent on a mission to do this at a certain time, and they just they can't waste anything. Like, they have to just keep going, but unfortunately, they have to do it by foot, and so it's going to take a while. And so it, uh, it works in that regard as well, because it is an exhilarating um, type of watch, even if they're just going through this kind of disastrous, like, deadly kind of graveyard, <laughs> just them walking, that, that's also... Um, really exhilarating to watch because you have no idea what's going to happen. Once again, it goes back to the unpredictability kind of nature of it and having this kind of, you know, um, kind of smooth, you know, almost, you know, one take look to it. Everything seems really calm and peaceful, but war is not like that sometimes. And it, it just kind of comes out of nowhere and uh, surprises you. And it just once again, that all kind of comes together really well for this, uh, you know, so-called gimmick. But like I said, I think it's a total disrespect for anyone to say this is just a purely a a video. Like this movie is nothing less than a B plus. Like I understand, I can understand. Like if you didn't like the the story or maybe the acting was a little, you know, whatever for you. But this is a bare minimum B plus movie. Um, I'm not giving it that. I'm just saying that just for everything else involved, minimum that. Uh, to start with Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins because. They are obviously the stars of the movie, for sure. Now, the one thing with one-take movies that I 
see a lot of people bring up in terms of it being a con is kind of like what Joel was talking about. It feels a little too cold, too calculated. Everything seems really coordinated well, but it's just like everyone's just hitting their spots and it's not really conveying anything deeper than that than just hitting your spot, saying your line, moving on, and it's not really having any weight to it or any type of emotional heft. I think uh, if you were to bring that argument up, I can understand that. It just, for me, it did not um, it did not go down that route. I thought everything really did feel authentic and just kind of uh, lived in, and these people were in these actual locations and going through the motions, and it felt like you were actually there with them in the trenches, um, in the fields when mines were exploding. It's just, it's a very, very immersive experience. And um, But I can see if people are just like, oh, it felt really calculated and uh, all that. Cause I, I understand that. If you watch one-take movies, that is the biggest thing on my mind is how authentic does it feel? Um, j- just, just to point out some examples, two of the most authentic ones I've seen in quite some time, I actually saw in the same... Uh, year slash same festival um son of saul is a really great one that has like some good authenticity to it and then uh this film, that's a very that's a very good comparison right yeah it's very much like that yeah and um and there's also another one that i would suggest you guys watch um it's either from germany or france i can't remember but it, it it's an, an actual real time one take shot and it's pretty wild how they shot it it's called victoria um Seek it out if you're into one-take movies. That movie will blow your mind. It literally happens in real time. It's crazy. But, um, yes, Son of Saul is probably the best comparison I can uh, put on this one. Yes, this one has a more of a sheen look to it because it's, you know, uh, Universal is a bigger (laughs) distribution company and uh, all that stuff versus what Son of Saul had. But um, it still has the same mechanics there that are definitely worth watching. But, yeah, to start with Sam Mendes because you have to – you have to break it down this way. The way uh, Sam Mendes directs uh, all these action set pieces, making sure they're cohesive and they flow from uh, scene to scene and have these you know transitions that are needed, um, it's really impressive. Uh, I- I'm going to be using this word a lot because it is. The, the coordination with the um, uh, secondhand actors – the main actors, the production design, all that coordination in the pre-production alone makes my head hurt uh, in a good way. And it makes me you know, appreciate this movie more knowing that these people poured their hearts and souls into this, making sure every single little detail was um, uh, perfected. And uh, I, I don't really like using the P word or the M word because um, stuff could change in the future. But I honestly believe... The production design, the costume design, the direction, and the cinematography in this movie are perfection. Like, they seriously are. Um, and it's really just, it is just something to behold. But the way Sam Mendes uh, coordinates these actors and coordinates the background noise and the effects and, um, you know, just making sure everything is just kind of like hitting in the right place, it's just, it's really, really well done. And, and on top of all that, the acting is really great, great here too. Like, because a, a, another job of a director is to get the best performance out of the actors. George McKay is amazing in this movie and really just owns the screen. Um, and so is the other gentleman. Um, and you have to have 
good performances if these are the two guys taking you throughout this mission you have to make us care about them and I think with the little backstory that they give they don't give a lot but just a little bit that they give and the performances uh, from each of them and how they're um, different from one another it's it's perfect like just their their performances guiding us throughout this uh, you know technical achievement it, it's it's really well done and I don't know if, if you guys know this but even if they're even if they are filming in like 15 16 20 minute increments only that's really hard to do as an actor and um the fact that these two guys pulled that off and being in like a battlefield situation come on man that's just once again minimum b plus i don't understand why people um uh, are having nitpicks with this movie it's crazy like i said can I, can i understand like the the kind of coldness and the calculation of like the one take gimmick sure but it, it just um, worked for me in the opposite end. Uh, like I said, production design, costuming, uh, building these, you know, areas and making it feel like it's, you know, 1917. And it's just, it's breathtaking. It's great stuff uh, all around in the pre-pro department. And then, of course, Roger freaking Deakins. This, this guy's a master. Like, him and uh, Lu, uh, Lubeski are uh, two, two of my favorites for sure. Um and they they have you know uh, similar styles, but you you can definitely tell them apart and be like, oh yeah, that, that's him or that's him. But they um, uh, definitely have some inspiration for one another, which is awesome. But dude, yeah, Deacons is just he's so great at what he does, and it's not just the traditional like, hey, let's follow them um, behind them or follow in front of them and just kind of you know uh, dolly backwards or dolly forwards. Like you know, Deacons has to. Um, operate his camera with other people running past him or, you know, uh, if there's an explosion that happens, you know, in the background here, like you have to make sure the characters are placed in the frame here. Like it's just all that stuff hurts my head too. And I don't, once again, I don't know how they did this. Um, uh, especially with stuff like, you know, when they're shooting guns at one another, like you have to, um, once again, it's all about camera placement and everything. It's just the preparation that they had to do for this movie. Um, is just really, really uh, well done, and the the cinematography is just gorgeous. Really, kind of mixing up the the shots while also being a one take. Like he doesn't have the characters always in the foreground. Sometimes when they're in the background, you have other stuff in the foreground. It's just, but you're constantly moving with it. So you, I, one- I honestly, I honestly hope that whoever was the was involved in that. I mean, obviously, it's going to be Mendez. Mendez Deacons is going to have a say. Maybe Lee Smith, the editor, just because of the coordination of um, uh, continuity, you know. I hope that whoever was kind of doing that really has, like, severe (laughs) OCD almost and enjoys doing that because otherwise I can't can't imagine that being fun. No, I, Uh, I, I don't, I don't know how anyone didn't lose their minds while doing this movie. Um, and and you know, what's really crazy about Deacons is that, you know, sometimes he's not the man actually behind the camera because when you're dealing with this kind of warfare cinematography, a lot of this stuff was shot on a crane. So you have to, you have to be offset somewhere looking at a monitor and you have to guide the camera like that. Like it's just (laughs) Guys, yeah. the technical oh, yeah. achievement in this movie, I think people are under understating it. It is it is one of the the craziest things I've ever seen in a cinema. Um and you know, like I said, it's just I understand people's concerns with it, but for me it just everything worked about it. I really have no nitpicks with it. It's just like 
it's just a dang good movie, man. I'm I'm withdrawing this one. I'm gonna give it an A. Um, I I think this is a great theater experience. If you guys are into war films, uh, the one shot, you know, cinematography, or just whatever, I think you're gonna uh, really find some enjoyment in it. Uh, as a, a film nerd or you know a casual film fan, just um, I was in a packed house last night. And that is a great telling for me that when it opens wide next week, I think we're going to really see something special with this movie. Um, but yeah, it, you know, what's really uh, crazy is that, um, you know, as I was watching the movie, I was kind of gauging the audience as well in terms of how they reacted. Um, when it got to some of the emotional stuff, like everyone was into it. Like there was people sniffling and crying and stuff. And I was like, this movie's powerful, man. And, um, it, oh, it yeah, even, it's it's it, another one from last year that you're really not prepared for, especially the, no. the turn that it takes. Uh, the, right. The story, whose story it ultimately becomes is Because I, I, I was sitting there I was sitting there going, oh, these two guys are going to have a mission. We're going to follow them. And then when it hits when it hits that that certain mm-hmm. point, I was emotionally invested. I, I was it was unexpected for me because I was just sitting there in awe about the constant flow with the, the camera and the story. But when it actually got to slow down for a little bit, it got to breathe, even though it's a one take. And we, all we see is just this, these two guys on screen performing their lines. It's like I found myself emotionally wrapped up into it, and I didn't expect it. It came out. It was it was a sneak attack. It really was. And I, you know, stuff like that is uh, why I like going to the movies. So, uh, yeah, I have nothing more. To, no, nothing more to say. If you like war films. Please, please, please check this one out. Um, 1917A from me. Yeah, it was, it was interesting that uh, what you're talking about with the reaction to the to some of the emotional stuff that happens here. Um, you know, another actor who gets uh, a single scene. It's it's basically like these two actors and then a bunch of other ones, like I was saying, who get a single scene to themselves. And uh, Richard Madden shows up um, near the end and gets his own scene and. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, and there were there were some sniffles in my audience. I, I went to a uh, a screening that was mostly for press, but they did allow a few, um, you know, uh, kind of a couple handfuls of of public audience goers in uh, to sit in some of the back rows, and uh, including a friend of mine who I did not know was going <laughs> to it, so I was able to see him anyway. And all in there, I mean, I sat on a on a mostly empty row, and when Certain things happened. There was this lady uh, kind of midway through the row who was always like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> like, like audibly. And I'm telling you, it's that kind of movie. It's one of those that you do that. Um, yeah, it's it's great. It's great. All right. So that's our reviews of 1917. Definitely one to check out when it opens near you if it hasn't already. Um and we're going to go ahead and talk about the trailers. Chase, you just have too many, don't you? <laughs> yeah, w- uh, way too many. Uh, what Hollywood decides to do, they just they dump so many trailers around the holidays because they're like, well, everyone's watching and everyone's online. Like They just dump everything around the holidays. That is a falsehood. Um, they don't do anything around the holidays because everyone's on vacation. Uh, but there were two trailers that dropped, and um, Paramount and Orion Pictures were the the ones that had the – the balls to drop ones this week, but um, we got a couple of them. And the one from Orion 
We got the full trailer and the full experience of uh, Gretel and Hansel. This is the one that stars Sophia Lillis, and you know it's a, a darker take on the uh, Gretel and Hansel story. Even though the story is already dark to begin with, it's um, it's you know kind of taking the uh, the approach of telling the you know just the story how it is and not you know kind of sugarcoating it like Disneyfying it. That's what I was trying to get um, get to, but. When I reviewed the the trailer a while back, it was just more of like a teaser, just a bunch of clips and stuff. Um, and we got the, a sense of like what the story is and like how everything's going to kind of play out with um, you know Gretel and Hansel and them stumbling across this house in the middle of the woods and then get, ultimately getting trapped there and having the, you know the witch um, you know <laughs> trying to like eat them alive. It's just it's wild, man. And you know what's what really weird um, to start off at the top. When you watch the trailer, you're like, oh, wow, this kind of reminds me of The Witch. Um, you know, Robert Eggers' film from 2015. It's kind of got that same vibe with the, uh, you know, the kind of gray tint, uh, kind of bleak look to it. Um, really kind of gorgeous cinematography. Um, this trailer reminded me of that. But when it was done, it was like rated PG-13. I was like, oh, my God, this gave like an R-rated vibe. And I didn't think Orion would uh, care if it was R or PG-13. Um, because they've been in the kind of R business ever since they've kind of rejuvenated their their brand. Even last year, they had The Prodigy, and that was rated R, and it definitely didn't need to be rated R because it was a terrible movie. I, I think it probably would have been more accessible if teenagers saw it. But, um, yeah, it, it, the most shocking thing was the fact that it was PG-13, but it actually looks pretty good. Um, I, I just think from its overall visual look, kind of looking like a grim fairy tale, and I like Sophia Lillis and her, you know, kind of coming out of the, the you know, it rat pack, if you will, uh, kind of doing her own thing. Um, you know, yeah, it just it, it looks it looks pretty solid. And, you know, for for being an end of January release. Hey, listen, besides Bad Boys for Life, I'm looking forward to Gretel and Hansel as my uh, I guess if I had to pick another movie besides Bad Boys to look forward to this month, this would be it. So. If you like stuff uh, like horror films that look like The Witch, or you like the kind of more accurate, adult, grimmer, um, kind of dark fairy tales, I think this one is uh, right up your alley. And it, it looks pretty good. Uh, I'm kind of shocked. Um, so, Orion, keep doing your thing, man. All right, and then the final trailer that dropped, and it was the one and only trailer that dropped on New Year's Day because Paramount just wanted to get out ahead of it. And I'm liking their marketing strategy. Um, usually with Paramount, uh, if unless it's like a like a Sonic or like a Transformers, they typically don't advertise their movies until like two months beforehand. And this is the case with A Quiet Place Part Two comes out March 20th of this year, and of course this is the sequel to A Quiet Place. And uh, this one, um, as IMDb puts it, it's following the events at home. Uh, the Abbott family now faces the terrors of the outside world. Forced to venture into the unknown, they realize that the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path. So, definitely getting into some bigger world building, you know, more creatures, maybe they have uh, certain senses that are disabled. Who knows? We'll have to watch the movie, but this one uh, brings the cast back together from the first one, like Noah Jupe and Emily Blunt. This one also has Killian Murphy, uh, Jaimin Hansu, um... Uh, Joel, how do you is it Millicent, Millicent Simmons? 
Yeah. Millie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She comes back as uh, the daughter. And of course, John uh, Krasinski is back to direct. But um, if you've seen the first one, he's not He's not in this one. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So he's just behind the camera uh, with this one. I, I'm not going to lie. I'm looking forward to it. And um, first things first, uh, when I saw the original Quiet Place in theaters, I was actually kind of shocked that people stayed quiet. Not a lot of people were uh, rowdy or on their phones or or talking. Like everyone was glued into the movie, which utilizes like ninety percent just silence most of the time with just some minimal sound design. Um, I was actually kind of shocked that a modern audience was able to pay attention to that and not cause a ruckus. So I was like, all right, the old person in me was just like, those dang kids actually cooperated. So that, so that was the first thing. So, and it was a huge hit. Everyone loved it. I loved it as well. So when they were making a part two, I was like, okay, interesting. I want to know how it looks. I want to know what they do with the story. And of course, they're not going to tell us much because they usually keep stuff like this in Cloverfield under wraps. Like they'll never let us know the full thing, but this trailer looks really, really strong and it doesn't really show us much. It just shows them kind of interacting outside of their home, you know, going into towns and meeting, you know, other people and uh, still trying to hide from these monsters that uh, hunt by sound. So what I, what I found interesting about the trailer is that Krasinski looks like he's, a bit looser as a director here. Like he actually has more rain in this. Um, just from the looks of the trailer, it looks like he's given more free will <laughs> to do whatever he wants because Krasinski is not a stranger to directing, but this was kind of like his first venture into horror suspense thriller. So I think a lot of people were a little hesitant when he directed the first one, but since it did so well and in critical claim, box office claim, all that stuff, it just seems like watching this trailer, he was given a little bit more freedom to kind of do what he wanted. It felt different. Like, it, like you'll know what I'm talking about. Like it just has like a different vibe to it. He's trying different te- uh, camera techniques out to reveal certain things and how he uh, conducts the scenes. It's just, there is a difference there. And I don't know what it was. I'm just speculating. But that's what I think happened is that they just gave him more freedom because the first one did so well. But yes, the suspenseful parts are there. Emily Blunt looks great. The kids look great. Um, I'm more excited for the you know the world building and and just what is beyond that house. You know, with the new people, how are they connected to everything? And you know, what other monsters and what other threats uh, are going to come about? Are we going to get a grand twist at the end that says like, ooh, this this is what was happening the entire time and it was across the world or something? I don't know. Uh, I'm not looking for a twist, but if they have one, I'm excited to find out what's up. Um, a lot of people speculated that this was a within the Cloverfield universe, so that would be pretty gnarly if they just did a 180 and was just like, oh yeah, this is actually like a Cloverfield universe movie, and we're like, what? <laughs> because uh, it seems like Paramount is uh, all about that Cloverfield uh, stuff. So e- either way, um, A Quiet Place Part 2 looks very promising. Uh, I like the trailer quite a bit and um, comes out in a couple months, so can't wait for that. So, Joel, um, out of the two, obviously Quiet Place, right? Uh, I saw both of these trailers, actually, because they both played in front of the grudge. Um, 
I'm gonna say that I'm more interested in Gretel and Hansel. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I'll get I'll get to a quiet place in a second. I, I'm I don't think that either of these is is in any way a bad trailer. Uh, I'll just say that. Um, I guess I'm more interested in Gretel and Hansel because it's just such a creepy story already. I want to see somebody kind of go go for broke. Uh, about the PG-13 thing, you know, I, I doubt that this is a movie that's going to pull any punches. It probably just kind of ended up being PG-13. I, I, I suspect that because this is the director of um, The Black Coat's Daughter from a few years ago, uh, Oz Perkins, um, that it isn't a case of anybody pulling any punches. It just so happened that someone at the MPAA decided this doesn't really uh, – warrant an R rating and so they didn't give it one but right but it, it was does, still shocking like when you watch the trailer it like, was still wow, shocking. This, this looks yeah. really adult and they're like pg-13 I'm like <laughs> oh wow okay <laughs> it is it is weird I mean it is it is it does look extremely dark uh, this is definitely not that witch hunters movie uh this is a movie of, that is very much about the kids very much about the cannibalistic nature of the of the old lady and 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 all of that it's it wasn't the witch hunters radar. <laughs> it was well, yeah, because they they went a totally different direction. But uh, right. but this is but this and I'm gonna, I'm actually going to I'm gonna I'm gonna reference a movie right now that I I can guarantee. Well, maybe I can't guarantee it, but I'm gonna promise really hard or or think really really positively has never been mentioned on any podcast. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna reference a movie and. I don't know if something is stirring within the deep crevasses of your memory, but uh, maybe you'll you'll know what I'm going with here. It's also not PG like the 2002 one that had Howie Mandel. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if you ever saw that, but there was a movie called – I'm pretty sure it was a Hansel and Gretel movie – called Hansel and Gretel, yeah, uh, that had Howie Mandel and Taylor Momsen from The Grinch. Very, very, very small release. I don't even know if it's on DVD. Uh, it might be somewhere. But yeah, I saw that in theaters. Uh, if anybody remembers that, let me know. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's definitely not that one. It's it's very much taking this, this you know, quote-unquote children's tale that's actually one of the most terrifying things ever and turns it into the visual representation of that because this is this is what I always thought that it looked like kind of. Right. Me, um, yeah, me too. When you hear the stories as a kid, you're like, oh, wow, this is like really disturbing. And then when you yeah. see like animated, like Disney-fied versions of you're like, no, yep. that's not exactly. what this is. <laughs> exactly. So I'm definitely interested. Uh, I mean, Sophia Lillis, really solid. Um, yeah, I wasn't huge on the Black Coat's daughter, but Perkins certainly has an eye. He's uh, the grandson, I think, I think it's the grandson of um, Anthony Perkins from Psycho. Mm. Um, yeah, the um, Norman Bates. Uh, and so, yeah, really, really good, really looks atmospheric, like you said, kind of weird that it's a January thing, kind of weird that it got a wide release to me, just because it seems like something like this would have gone to VOD, you know, uh, it just feels like something that would have, but it is a well, wide release. Well, what's weird is like that weekend, The Turning also comes out, and that looks like a VOD release. I think that's the weekend before. Oh, we could, uh, either that, way, it's like, why are they cannibalizing each other? It's crazy. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this, th those two, the grudge, kind of all answering to the same audiences, and it'll be interesting to see which one of those comes out comes out on top. Of course, the grudge, I think, 
got like a cinema score of an F, right? Or something. <laughs> yeah, so, it, it, uh, it did not fare well. It, it you know, did it's not. really funny. I, the Hereditary actually got a bigger score than that. It was like a D minus yeah. or a D plus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 really, it should tell you. I mean, uh, this is this is one of those rare cases where an F cinema score actually is like you can understand it when you see the movie because it's basically. Uh, and we're getting off on a tangent here, but it's basically a, a, an art film uh, kind of chiseled into something that is trying to be mainstream and then ends up working as neither of them. Um, and so it really is understandable. My audience was not into that movie. So it'll be interesting to see if maybe they'll they'll be into the, you know, I, I have a feeling that in terms of the cinema score, which I don't really care about, but is an interesting um an, an interesting artifact can, to consider the turning is probably going to have the highest one. <laughs> I, su- I suspect just because it does look like the most crowd pleasing uh, of the horror movies this, this January. But anyway, um, or maybe under, maybe underwater as well. Uh, underwater is another one that's coming out next week. Kind of horror, kind of suspense, whatever. So uh, the, a quiet place looks really good. Uh, certainly looks like they are, you know, opening the, universe a little bit um and the problem is i kind of wonder whether this is necessary and that's what i've been wondering ever since i heard about this because it felt like the first one was such a great little enclosed kind of its own thing movie um whose least interesting parts were when everything becomes loud and crazy right there at the end and this feels like this is living in those final minutes of the first movie. Um, but like I said, I'm interested. I, I think that the, uh, the cast additions are really cool. Certainly like Killian Murphy, but, uh, or however you say his name, Cillian, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just, I just have to wonder about the necessity of this. It's obviously going to make a lot of money. Uh, whenever the, the trailer played yesterday, uh, people were definitely into that. Um, there was a lot, like a lot of muttering whenever the title came up and, and all that. It was, it was, uh, it was certainly that, but I, I'm just, you know, a little, I'm a little hesitant just because of, um, how good the first movie was and how it just seemed to work as its own thing and whether or not this is even, is this is even necessary as a movie, certainly as a trailer, it's really well put together as a movie. It's, it's good. Uh, it looks good. I should say. But yeah, I just have to wonder about the um, the necessity of it. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, I mean, that's certainly going to be the movie that we're reviewing that week. <laughs> so unless something else is bigger, I, I can't imagine. We reviewed, uh, we reviewed the first one. We got to do the second. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I I do think it looks uh, looks quite good. I'm looking here. Uh, yeah, it's definitely the the one that we're going to review. Um. All right, so that's that, and we're going to get into some news, and there's really only two two things that I want to talk about. The first one I'm going to get to involves the latest entry into the uh, This Movie's Never Gonna Come Out sweepstakes, which has been kind of um, dominated by a bunch of stuff finally getting released uh, recently. Uh, movies that nobody ever thought was uh, was going to come out. Underwater has been delayed for a long time. Um, I think The Grudge was delayed for a little while because it was shot like two years ago. Um, and there's some others that I that I can't really think of. But 
Color Out of Space maybe is is coming out just in a couple of weeks on VOD. That one's been taking a while to to get to theaters, uh, and it's barely getting to theaters. You know, so there's been a lot of these movies, and this one is Uncharted, um, which is the adaptation of the first of a series, I think, of like five video games now. And uh, it was supposed to star – well, originally, I think the project was attached to um, – uh, was it Nathan Fillion? I think. I think that he was briefly attached to it, and that just kind of fall, fell apart. So now Tom Holland is the, is going to be the star. He's going to be playing Nathan Drake, who's kind of this Indiana Jones character who is um, uh, really, really excellent at climbing. I haven't played these guys. I don't know what I'm talking about. But basically, he just goes around and searches for things and gets into adventures and all of that. It's perfect fodder for a movie in in the Indiana Jones mold. And I've seen them played. Uh, I've seen one of them played. And it looks pretty fun. I mean, it is very National Treasure, Indiana Jones, seeking clues to, you know, to find out the answers to something much bigger. And um, Holland's going to be co-starring with Mark Wahlberg, who plays Sully, uh, who's his mentor and um, – and all of that. But then there's a problem, and that is the uh, the kind of the, the capitalistic monopoly of, of Marvel, which is constantly getting in the way of Tom Holland being able to do this because I think that he was originally going to shoot it at some point within the past couple of years, and then uh, he had to shoot um, Far From Home, and that kind of... Uh, um, interrupted the plans and then um, now he was going to go shoot it again but now they have to do the third Spider-Man and so they lost because of these all these you know uh, um, schedule things that keep coming up they lost another director yet another director Travis Knight uh, who recently who previously directed Bumblebee this was going to be his next big blockbuster uh live action blockbuster to get him some money i guess to fund uh <laughs> to fund Leica. um he was attached and he was the one two three four five sixth director attached to this project believe it or not the first director ever to be attached was david o russell uh way back and then i think neil berger was going to be the one to direct the nathan fillion version of this and then they had seth gordon come in when berger dipped out uh gordon fell out when it fell apart again um and i believe that sean levy took over and he was going to be the first one to direct holland and then when that fell out i think dan trachtenberg from 10 cloverfield lane uh kind of came on and and then uh knight came on after after bumblebee's success and now it's not happening again or it's going to push the project back even further they're going to have to find another person to direct this. Um, and it just is sad to me because this does seem like it's going to be a sure thing at the box office when it does finally come out. It comes from it comes from screen, screenwriters who are um, uh, familiar with Marvel. Uh, it has Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. writer Rafe Judkins and Iron Man writers Art Markham and Matt Holloway. So... Clearly, good names attached to this. Uh, you know, not only Holland and, and uh, whatever director they get, but I'm excited to see it. Um, I think that I think that they just need to get they they need to get it moving, and that Marvel needs to be at least a little bit, you know, uh, in terms of just shooting shooting schedules, 
a little bit more, uh, um, I guess, uh, fluid and uh, and helpful. But they're not going to be because they're Marvel and they rule the earth. Uh, and, and Disney rules the earth. Nothing can get away in the way of Disney. Um, they're a monopoly in that way. It's really annoying. But Chase, are you are you familiar at all with the series? Are you excited to see the movie? And do you wish that they would just make it already? Yeah, so I, I'm not like the biggest gamer in the world. I play like the same three games growing up, uh, so I'm definitely uh, pretty basic that way. But I've seen Uncharted being played, like you said, <clears throat> by friends and stuff, and it does have that Indiana Jones, National Treasure type of feel. And I think I get why they're taking so long on it and why people keep dropping out, because they have to realize that this has got to be right. And if it is right, and it's a great you know, strong out of the gate first movie, then you're looking at potential franchising. And that's what any studio wants is they want to franchise movies. So business wise, it makes sense to me. They're, they're just trying to find the right person. Um, Travis Knight was probably my most excited pick for it. And I'm just wondering why, you know, uh, he's not attached anymore. Creative differences. Cause that's their favorite phrase to throw around. Um, but yeah, I was hoping he could get this job because I think he—I think you're right, uh, Joel. This is just a a circle of money uh, to uh, keep Leica open, which is a okay <laughs> with me. If you want right. to give Travis Knight ten mil to do a blockbuster film just so he can do the next Leica project, that is one hundred thousand percent okay with me. Um, once again, not a fan of nepotism, but I gotta respect the hustle from uh, Nike's son. Um, because he, he wants to create really good movies. So, but yeah, I was actually, I was hoping that um, Mr. Knight would do it, but, you know, as far as if, if I'm excited for it, uh, you know, I, I got I to gotta see how it looks. Um, because right. when I played the reboot, kind of reimagining of Tomb Raider, I didn't play through the whole thing, but I played through the first couple levels. It was awesome. I was like, this is this is really cool. And then when you hear about them making a movie, Alicia Vikander, it's like, oh, wow, this is going to be something special. Yeah, they're making a sequel to it, which baffles me because of the uh, box office returns. But um, it was very lukewarm for people. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is just not what people are into. So that is probably was also giving them hesitation to going forward with this project, knowing that Tomb Raider did not do so, so hot. So... I don't know. Um, I'd have to see it in action um, first. So basically, I'd have to see a trailer. Um, right. I, set right. photos are not going to sway me. Um, seeing people in the costumes are not going to sway me. I got to see how it looks. Because I actually thought the new Tomb Raider was promising and looked hopeful. I didn't see it still. But, um, you know, but it got me excited for it. So, you know. That, that's that's kind of where I'm at right now, but I'm really disappointed that Travis Knight is uh, not attached to it anymore. All right, well, we're gonna get into some Golden Globes predictions. I don't know Chase's plans, but I always try to get out of seeing the Golden Globes. Uh, I oh, just we're don't care about them it. anymore. We're watching. You are <laughs> okay. Yeah, oh yeah, the the missus loves to watch the uh, the red carpet because she likes <laughs> looking at the dresses, and then uh, I like um, watching the award show and seeing how many times Ricky Gervais is going to dunk on people. So, right. Uh, oh my dude, Joel, did I tell you when I watched, um, was it the 2016 one? It was the one where he, cause that, that's where Steve Carell was nominated for Foxcatcher, or it was the 2015 one where 2015. he, yeah. he, uh, introduced Steve on stage for an award presentation or what? 
it was one of the most awkward things I've ever seen because he tried to hug him and Ricky has that smug look on him where he's like, yeah, uh, yeah, you were kicked off the office uh, and you wanted to go because you don't like me and we have a, a bad history. And then Steve was like, please don't touch me. And it's just like, <laughs> I'm like, who okayed this? It's just, it's awkward uh, for sure. And it's broadcasted to millions of people. So that's fun. But um, yes, we will be watching it uh, for sure. So I'm actually excited to do these uh, predictions with you. <laughs> I know right. You care, yeah. But... It's, it's, it's so funny because I always try to find a, a reason to skip it. And then I just have to be like, well, never mind because I'm just going to watch it because it's the award season. I'm in the mood to see it, even though the Golden Globes really don't mean anything <laughs> for the Oscars. They really uh, don't, but it yeah. is uh, exactly what people claim it is. It's like, hey, have a have a couple drinks and uh, watch someone roast someone for two hours. Right, exactly, and that's that's basically what it's about. Because this is a group that bas- barely watches any of the movies that they <laughs> right, you know, that they nominate. So. These nominate these these predictions are basically meaningless. But since it is happening, we're going to go ahead and do some predictions, especially because there were no other uh, <laughs> interesting pieces of news this week, and I wanted to fill out the space a little bit. Um, so we're just going to go through some of the major categories. We're not going to do like best song. We're not going to do best animated film. We're going to do a, a few of these other things. So. Uh, first, we got motion picture drama, and just to remind people of what the uh, the nominees are, we've got uh, The Irishman, Joker, Marriage Story, 1917, and The Two Popes. Uh, those are our nominees for motion picture drama. Now, last year, uh, if people will remember, maybe they're maybe they're awoken by it uh, to to cold sweats. I'm not sure, but Bohemian Rhapsody won, and it did not get a a director or screenplay nomination so anything can happen at the golden globes it it, it can happen so because of that and because of the uh, like the arrested rapturous um uh response to the movie that 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 this particular movie got i think i'm going to throw chase off a little bit by by predicting that joker is going to win this award um, I think that it's the movie that they that they really just love the most, even though I don't think it's going to win Best Director. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, there is a movie that they love more. Um, I think that Joker is going to win this. I, I think it's just the one that is – this is the toughest category to predict because it could be any of them. But uh, but I think that it's going to – I think that it's going to take it. So I'll just go ahead and move on to uh, motion picture, musical, or comedy, which is – uh, a little, a little less, a little less hard to predict. In fact, it's a lot less hard to predict. Um, so the nominees were Dolomite is my name, Jojo Rabbit, uh, Knives Out, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Rocket Man. Uh, the HFPA loves Tarantino, so this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's to lose. Uh, I guess outside shots for maybe Rocket Man or Jojo, maybe Dolomite. Uh, maybe Dolomite is the strongest um, dark horse here, just because both are both are about kind of filmmaking and and Hollywood in in some way. Uh, whether Dolomite is right outside that <laughs> whole uh, thing, they did they did like it quite a bit. Um, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the movie that I think is going to win that. I, I think that it's really a cakewalk because they love Tarantino and um, and yeah. So uh, Chase, did you have any any thoughts on what's going to win these? 
Yeah, so I'm actually with you. I think he, uh, the drama uh, motion picture is a two-horse race between Joker and the Irishman. Mm, now, if yeah. you're asking my personal picks, and now that I've actually seen, uh, since these nominations came out, I've seen The Two Popes and 1917 now. If you're asking me personally, I want Marriage Story to win because that is, uh, by logic, if you look at my top ten list, yeah, you know, the uh, since it's the Parasite's not in there, <laughs> Marriage Story would be the winner right there. But... I do think you are correct. I think Joker's going to come out of nowhere and uh, and get it. It's not going to shock anyone. It might shock some people, but it, it might just kind of sneak in there and get it. But it's also the Irishman uh, as well that's going to be a very, very um, strong contender. It's between those two. It's either uh, Warner Brothers or Netflix. So yeah. <laughs> those are your <laughs> options. Um, as far as uh, musical or comedy, which, by the way, I'm hoping by the time Joel and I – are uh, getting close to death around the age of 90 that they rid this category, um, musical and comedy in general. Just please stop. Right. <laughs> um, but they probably won't, though. Um, I, I think you're right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to win this, which will, you know, when we get into the director conversation, because um, this, this, with certain wins, they will, you know, you can kind of tell where they're going to go everywhere else with it because they kind of, like to disperse it a little bit. So once upon a time in Hollywood is going to win this one, the outside shot uh, is either rocket man or Dolomite is my name. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think knives out or Jojo rabbit have a chance in heck. Um, but uh, I've been hearing a lot of strong buzz for Dolomite is my name. Um, because, you know, with uh, like Eddie Murphy being nominated as well, we're going to get to that. But um, yeah, that I- I'm, I'm kind of with you on both of these. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I would vote for if I had a vote. I would vote for the Irishman in drama. That's that was my favorite. It's like you said. It's whatever is kind of highest ranked on your top ten is going to be the one that you that you voted for. And this one was number six, it's the highest of those. Um, none of the musical or comedy choices made my list, but in a like a like just a hair over Dolomite as my name, I would vote for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think it's going to win. Uh, it makes sense too. I mean, they love Hollywood. Obviously, they're literally the Hollywood foreign press. Uh, so <laughs> I think a story about Hollywood in a transition period for them is going to really communicate that um, uh, win very well. So, um, and on that note, actually, there's a lot of people predicting one name for best director, but I think it's going to be another one. And the nominees are Bong Joon Ho for Parasite, Sam Mendes for 1917. Quentin Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Martin Scorsese for The Irishman, and Todd Phillips for Joker. Uh, I think you know, there's a lot of people predicting that it's going to be Bong Joon-ho, and that's who would get my vote uh, pretty handily uh, for Best Director. But I think that they're going to go for Tarantino uh, once again, I, and, and we're going to get into this with screenplay later on too. I think that Hollywood is really the movie that they liked the most uh, this year. From what I heard, and uh, yeah, I just I think that it is it's pretty I think it's pretty clearly going to be the winner. Now, if anybody does take it away, it's going to be Bong because they like Parasite a lot. But uh, but yeah, uh, we do know that they saw these movies. By the way, there have been there have been documented cases of of H- HFPA voters seeing these. It's a question of what else they saw. But uh, whether they even saw stuff like The Irishman <laughs> or or whatever. But they did absolutely see Parasite. They saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They saw Joker. 
And I think that those are the three that have the strongest, you know, chances of winning. Um, I just, I think it's, I think it's Tarantino's to lose personally. Uh, did you have any different thoughts? Do you think it's going to be Bong Joon-ho or uh, the, the, do you think the, it's going to be Tarantino? Joel, this is what people tune in for is the disagreements and uh, saying that you're wrong. Um, okay. <laughs> now, does Quentin have a shot? Absolutely. I actually think that um, Sam Mendes is the the, the strong contender. Mm. I, I think given the the subject matter, World War One, um, you know, what he did in that movie, I, I think there is a stronger chance for him to get it. And if if I had to do like a like a second and a third, I'd go uh, Scorsese, um, uh, Tarantino, then Bong Joon Ho. So, okay. I mean, that, that's kind of, I, I could be completely wrong, and they could just go with Scorsese, and then we're both wrong. But <laughs> right. um, I think that Mendez has like I have this weird sneaky suspicion, especially maybe it's just because I just saw it last night. But I have this weird suspicion that since he's not going to – well, not he, but not if the movie does not get drama, I have a feeling that they're going to give the movie director instead. Okay, okay. That's an interesting theory. That's an interesting theory. It could easily go that way. Obviously, like I was saying, they can they can do anything they want to, really. I mean, they, they, could, they could throw everybody for a loop. Um, and do Bong Joon-ho, well, which would be fantastic. Uh, which would it, be fantastic. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, if you're looking it. at my top ten list, as you guys know, yeah. it's Parasite all the way, baby. So if they want to get Bong Joon-ho any type of award uh, throughout now until the Oscars, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Of all of the obvious like Best Picture nominee probabil- probables like at the Oscars, I, obviously Parasite's going to be nominated, <laughs> and I want him to win. So – um, yeah, it's, it's great. All right. So we're going to move into the two best actor categories. Uh, there's drama and, and Chase's favorite musical or comedy in drama. The nominees are Christian Bale for Ford v. Ferrari, uh, Antonio Banderas for pain and glory, Adam driver for marriage story, uh, Joaquin Phoenix for Joker and Jonathan price for the two popes. Now what I want to win is Adam driver who is, who is, you gave one of the best performances of the year, but I think, that they love transformative performances, and I think that we're looking at Joaquin Phoenix winning for this award. Now, um, it would certainly be you know worthy. I think that Driver is. I actually look. I'm looking at this. I would probably put two people over Phoenix in terms of my my favorite performances in this category: Driver and Banderas. Uh, both I thought were excellent. So, but yeah. Phoenix is to lose, and then you have musical or comedy actor, and that's a an interesting group <laughs> to say the least. Really, only one of these I think is going to knock out Price and be nominated at the Oscars. But there's Daniel Craig in Knives Out, Roman Griffin Davis in Jojo Rabbit, which is always fun to see because um, he was he was a really good he gave a really good performance. Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's the one that I think is going to be nominated at the Oscars. Um, Taron Egerton in Rocket Man. And Eddie Murphy and Dolomite is my name. Now, I think that despite the fact that DiCaprio is the one among these that is likeliest to get an Oscar nomination, the one that I think is going to win here is Eddie Murphy uh, because he has previously won. Uh, He's fantastic in the role. They did really like this movie. So 
Uh, would he be my choice? He might be. Um, he might be. I like DiCaprio a lot. I like Davis a lot. I thought Craig was fun. Those are all on a tier lower than these other performances, though. Edgerton and Murphy. Um, I'm going to say, yeah. I think that Murphy should win. I think that he will win. I think that he's going to take this one. So that's best actor, musical, or comedy. Chase, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so with uh, actor in the drama category, I, I I think you're right. I think Phoenix has got this. And I know people are going to be shocked that everyone's loving Joker and it's going to be winning a bunch of stuff, but let's just face the facts. It's going to win a lot of stuff. And I'm okay with that. It's not my personal pick, um, but I think Phoenix will probably snag this one. However, if you were asking me, it, it's Adam Driver all the way, baby. I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. this yeah. is this is his category to lose all the way up until the Oscars. Like that's that's how confident I am that he will do uh, some damage. Uh, have not seen Pain and Glory. Um, unfortunately, one of the ones I missed, but I, I did better this year. Um, I actually saw most of the movies. Jonathan Price and the Two Popes is really good, and so is Anthony Hopkins. By the way, if you guys have not checked that out, I don't know what kind of drug Netflix took this year. But they are knocking out of the park left and right. The Irishman, Marriage Story, Dolomite is my name, The Two Popes. They're killing it. So um, check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, it would be really funny since they are the Hollywood, Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Since uh, Ford v. Ferrari deals with a uh, foreign entity, they're like, oh, it's Christian Bale all the way. Um, that would be hilarious. But uh, as much as I like Bale in that movie, he has no shot. Um, as far as actor in a musical or a comedy... I'm going to be the opposite. I think it's broken down like this. And this is um, where I think they're going to go with it and my personal favorite. So it, it, it's a win-win. I think Taron Edgerton has a 60% shot. I think Eddie Murphy has a 30% shot. And then Leo is going to take the, the final 10. Um, so I think that's where it's stacked up right now. Um, Elton John, like Joel, you got to admit, man, Elton John is beloved. And I think... Oh, yeah. Because of that, I think Edgerton's got the ed- – well, pun intended, the edge um, over everyone else. And I think Eddie Murphy is r- just right there behind him. And then Leo uh, as the 10% dark horse. But I actually think Taron's got this. Yeah, it's – yeah, it's interesting. I, I, it's obviously between those two. Like I said, I, I think in terms of likelihood, the other three performances are a little less – are a little less likely. I just, I don't know, man. It's a real toss-up between the two. Well, and I, this has Edgerton, no, this Edgerton has no has bearing on the Golden Globes, but remember, Taron is one of the few that snuck in there and got a SAG nomination. So I know right. that has no bearing over it, but you know, just think about that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it does, it, uh, yeah. I just feel like this is a different group of people. That's true. Yeah, they're not critics. They're just press members. So it's, it's <laughs> they're not real people. They're not really critics. Uh, <laughs> they're a bunch of just they're they're a bunch of mannequins in a room, <laughs> pretty uh, much with a with a strange robotic voice controlling Man- mannequins uh, would be more effective, right? Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I it's like I said, it's a toss up between the two. I I just I don't know what's gonna win here. I just know I think I think that I would go for Murphy. Um, I don't know. It's like I said, it's, it could be anybody, but all right. Uh, well, not anybody. It couldn't be Daniel Craig, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, all right. So the best actress, um, 
categories, we have – I should say that I haven't seen two of these. There are two of these that I have not seen. But um, we got Cynthia Erivo and Harriet, Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, Saoirse Ronan in uh, Little Women, Charlize Theron in Bombshell, and Renee Zellweger in Judy. Now, guys, I'm just going to say this is wrapped up. This is this is wrapped up. It's, it's Renee Zellweger's to lose. They love transformative performances, as I said. This is the one that I have heard is – better than Theron of the two that are being transformed here. Um, I don't know how many of these members have actually seen Bombshell. I know that they love Judy. So I think that it's it's Zellweger's to lose. Now, keeping in mind that I have not seen Harriet or Bombshell, my, my vote would be Johansson. I think that she's fantastic here. But, um, but yeah, it, I, I feel like I feel like this is Zellweger's to lose. Then you have musical or comedy actress, and we have uh, Aquafina in The Farewell, Ana de Armas in Knives Out, uh, Beanie Feldstein in Booksmart, Emma Thompson in Late Night, and Kate Blanchett in Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Uh, I'm not sure about the likelihood of any of these people getting into um, <laughs> the Oscars. Aquafina Maybe has Aquafina. probably the best shot. Probably so, and she's yeah. probably going to be the one who wins. Um, just because the farewell is nominated in foreign language and um, uh, probably is between her and Ana de Armas, I guess. But I guess if I were to go to you know with somebody for my personal pick, it would it would have to be Aquafina. I think that she's the best here. She's in the best movie. Um, if Feldstein is a lot of fun, de Armas is a lot of fun. I think that Aquafina is doing more for the screenplay that she's working with. Um, and that's not to slag Thompson or Blanchett. I think they're both good. Their movies are not very good, but, uh, but they're both good in them. I just think that this is Aquafina's to lose. So yeah. What are your thoughts here? Yeah. With the drama stuff, uh, the only thing I haven't seen is Harriet. Um, and I, I like Renee Zellweger and Judy. Like she's definitely the best part about that entire thing. I just, and she's gonna win it. I just give it to ScarJo, man. Like that, the performance in Marriage Story is just—it's out of bounds, man. Like just knowing, like what she did, like just seeing this anguish and pain on this woman's face in most of these scenes. It's like it's exhausting to watch, but in a good way. It's just like they, they put so much effort into it, and then it's probably gonna be Renee Zellweger. It's like okay, uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, she she she's got this. Um, yeah. Uh, ScarJo is obviously my personal pick, um, and then I actually preferred Theron over Zellweger in terms of transformative performances. Um, what she did with Megyn Kelly, regardless of what your political view is, uh, her yeah, just her, be, just becoming the person she she right, impressed it, you more. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, it it takes your breath away, like on how much uh, you know accurate makeup, uh, uh, inflections in the voice, tone, just everything. Uh, her Kidman and Robbie just. Uh, that whole collective is just amazing. But, um, and then I, I appreciate the Saoirse Rona pick because little women is just getting shut out everywhere. Uh, so I'm glad to know that that movie's getting something. <laughs> um, right. uh, hopefully the Oscars are different, uh, in terms of that narrative, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, in terms of actress and musical or comedy, it's Aquafina, Aquafina, Aquafina. Right. <laughs> I, I really, I really don't care about anyone else. Uh, they're all good, but Aquafina is just like, it's it's like a thousand steps above what everyone else did on this list. Um, mm-hmm. 
And if you're asking me personally, uh, just uh, as a little side thing, I would actually put Caitlin Deaver instead of Beanie um, for okay. Booksmart. Uh, I, I, I liked I like Caitlin's performance just a, a, a tad bit more, even though they work really great with one another. She was my favorite. Um, I, I think it was just because of her storyline and what she went through in terms of uh, certain aspects about a certain party at the very end. Like I, I felt like that was that was the winner for me in terms of the two. Uh, Emma Thompson was great in Late Night. Um, Kate Blanchett in a movie that no one saw except for Joel and myself, uh, which I, I get all the time, by the way. Uh, people will comment on my YouTube channel, and it's just like, did, did people actually watch this? And it's like, I don't think they did, man. I think I think Joel are, 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 and I are the literal people on this earth that saw it, and we, we reviewed it, and no one listened. Um, and then Ana de Armas, um, it definitely... I, I think Joel and I both agree when we reviewed it on the show, she gave one of the, probably the best performance out of the bunch just because of how much was on her shoulders and how much it focused on her. And she, she came out and she delivered. And so, but yeah, it's, it's Aquafina all the way, man. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even think there's really competition from the others. We'll see though. We'll see though. Uh, if, if the Armas pulls it out, uh, I guess I'm wrong. We're wrong. Uh, all right, just two more, I think, uh, that I'm going to cover. Well, three more, three more. I'll just group them all together here. So first, supporting actor. Um, and this was going to go pretty quickly because the nominees are Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci, each for The Irishman, Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, and Anthony Hopkins for The Two Popes. Um, yeah, Brad Pitt. Okay, so supporting actress. <laughs> no, um I will say I think my choice, like my personal vote, would go for Pacino. Um, this is a really good category, I got to say, because Hopkins was really good. Hanks was really good. Pesci was really good. Honestly, Pitt was really it, good. It's, it's hard to choose. Yeah, like, it is I hard like to choose. I like all five of these. I, I think that Pacino just gave my favorite performance to watch, if that makes sense. It's doing really good. Pitt's doing really good work. I think the other ones are just maybe there's a little – and I, I guess I'm going for the big performance here because the other ones feel a little smaller almost. Hanks isn't doing a perfect Fred Rogers impression. He's kind of doing his own thing a little bit. Pesci is doing the icy affable routine after playing Hotheads, and it's really good. Uh, it's fantastic, and I talked about that on our top ten list. He's fantastic in it. Um, he's just maybe not the performance, at least for me, that stays with me. Um, after having viewed it, it's Pacino. Pitt doing really good, but he did better working at Astra. Anthony Hopkins doing really good, but he's kind of overshadowed by Price, who is even better. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go with Pitt here. Uh, I mean, uh, sorry, Pacino as my personal pick, but I think it's Pitt's to lose. They love that movie, and they love him. So, yeah, um, that's wrapped up. Now, supporting actress has a couple of really baffling choices. So, Again, have not seen Bombshell, but Margot Robbie is nominated for that. Um, otherwise, we have Annette Bening in The Report, Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers, Kathy Bates in Richard Jewell, and Laura Dern in Marriage Story. Now, um, okay. <laughs> uh, again, I haven't seen Bombshell, so I can't attest to how good Robbie is in that. I think that my choice, my pick is Dern, Laura Dern, 
Um, Jennifer Lopez is really good. I think Laura Dern is doing something unexpected with that character. Um, the one that baffles me is Kathy Bates in a movie that is bad, and she's bad in it. Uh, they love her, though. So I'm honestly thinking that it's Dern who will win with an outside shot that Bates will take it. Um, and I know that that's surprising, but yeah, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at right now. Cause they really like Kathy Bates. I just don't understand what is the draw about that performance. It's way too over the top. It's not important at all. And, um, uh, yeah, she's not, she's just kind of doing solid background work. It's not, it's really not at the forefront of the movie. Uh, and then the last one that I'm going to talk about before we get into our review of, uh, of Uncut Gems, um, best screenplay. Uh, and the nominees here, uh, well, <laughs> there are five nominees and one clear winner um, for me. And the nominees are Marriage Story, Parasite, The Two Popes, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and The Irishman. I think, like I was saying with the director, this is pretty clearly going to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, they just – they love this movie. They love Tarantino. This would be his third win. I'm sure that they would be happy to do that. Um, and so – but now he has been nominated three times. However, he wins when his movies are nominated uh, for best motion picture. So considering it is nominated, I think that he's probably going to win. So that's that's me. Um, obviously, Bond could come in here and take it just like director, but – Bong and um, Han Jin Wan, his co-screenwriter. But uh, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So your thoughts on these last three categories? Yeah, so with the screenplay, I, I don't know, man. Like They probably will give it to Quentin, and I'm probably going to be 100,000% wrong, which is fine. It's usually most of the time here. But I think... I think I think Bombach has probably the better shot, just slightly above him. Mm. I, I think they they might give it to uh, Marriage Story. Is like kind of like, you know, if he if he does win it, it's going to be like a, a nice little, I guess, little um, step in his map uh, or his road into winning the uh, the Oscar for it. But I think I think he's got the better shot, and then I I probably agree with you that Quentin's got a uh, very high up there as well, kind of. 50-50 for me. And then, of course, uh, Bong and uh, Han, they have the uh, kind of dark horse outside shot. Um, if you're asking me personally, I don't know. I kind of want Parasite to get it. Um, you know, I, Parasite and Marriage Story, they could be flopped uh, for me, but uh, I, I give the uh, upper hand to the, the dark horse here. As right. Far as, do oh, I? Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, oh, no, go no, ahead. No. You, you weren't done. Uh Okay, so for supporting uh, actress in a motion picture, the net bidding one is baffling to me because Adam Driver is the the better out of the two, and I, she's fine. Like I like the movie, but she's fine. <laughs> um, I, I still haven't seen Richard Jewell, but uh, Joel has instructed me not to see it ever, um, so I probably won't. Um, uh, but I think uh, my. What I think is going to win is probably Laura Dern. Uh, my personal pick is a 50-50 shot between Dern and Lopez. I mean, that, that's basically right, uh, yeah. it for that's me. That's where I am, too. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I love Margot Robbie in Bombshell. I, I think the trio works. but uh, And she does have some really great scenes. But um, the more magnetic performances are uh, uh, Theron and Kidman. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. Uh, and the supporting actor... Um, 
I think you're right. I think Pitt's going to win this, and he's going to possibly win it for the Oscar as well. Um, if you're asking me personally, I'm kind of with Joel. I go with Pacino. What like what, what an entertaining performance that like strikes through all the conversations out there. It's like he's the one that just sticks out the most. I'm like, yeah, I like that. Um, also, I would I'll, I'll like to mention Tom Hanks as well. I think the moment or the minute of silence that mm-hmm. that film provides with his character it stands out. Uh, amongst as one of the best scenes of the year and he's in charge of that like he's in charge mm-hmm. of that scene to make you really feel the power of silence and that that's um something to behold so yeah i think pitt's got this but pacino is my personal fave yeah um yeah it's it's pretty crazy i guess i forgot to mention that my my vote for screenplay yeah, it's a toss-up, man, because I think that they're – the two popes, I think – I don't know. I, I wouldn't go with that one. I like the movie. I think that they don't really do much to favor um, uh, the Hopkins character very much, and that's a screenplay problem. He kind of gets pushed off to the side. But the other four are just really strong. I think that you got um, the Irishman, which is Steven Zalian, who is – uh, telling this big sprawling story and manages to do that with a lot of uh, panache over you know a long period of time. That's really impressive. It's also really impressive how Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is able to reflect on this period in Hollywood, and also you know the the reinvention of the final act is is really really cool. Uh, but yeah, the top two I guess are the ones that are really strong and. I guess I'm going to go with Parasite, but man, Marriage Story, all that dialogue is written. All of that stuff is caref- is so carefully, you know, kind of uh, workshopped. And that, that's, that's imp- why I think it's going to be the, the battle of dialogue. Yeah, it's either going to be Tarantino a, or a Bombach. I mean, that's yeah, just the that's way it's going to go. Point. That's but, a good point. But with Parasite, have you guys, like, read the, the backstory on how, you know, Bong's assistant, Han, uh, did so much research for the movie – that he credit him as co-writer. He didn't have to do that, but he did mm. so much research into how they were going to construct the film and where they were going to go with it that he was like, like you did enough uh, research and everything for this story that you were going to be credited as co-writer. And so just hearing that story of how much prep work that they did into that script, that's why I – there's just something – there's a part of me that just wants me to give them the edge because of how much uh, – you know, just story uh, uh, building that they um, did in the script. So I, I, I don't know, man. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Alrighty, well that's it for the Golden Globes. We'll see what happens tomorrow with our predictions. Uh, I don't know if we're watch. They're report. all wrong, right? <laughs> they're just all wrong, and we spent like forty minutes wrong. just talking in the thin air. They're just like yep. people are going to be listening to this beyond Sunday, and they're going to be like, "You guys were such idiots." <laughs> Joker wins everything, including director, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Um, including, uh, categories it's not nominated for. No, uh, <laughs> that would be hilarious. They did love that. They did love that movie though. Um, and that's why I think it's going to be drama, but yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. All right. So that's it guys. That's our news segment, even though it was really only one bit of news. Um, so we are going to then transition into our second review of this episode and that would be uncut gems this is the new movie from sibling directors benny and josh safty uh who co-wrote the screenplay with ronald bronstein they're 
regular writing partner. Joel, just real quick, I thought at first you said from the civil directors. I was like, are they uncivil? Like, why are they civil all of a sudden? From the criminal directors. (laughs) From the Um, underground (laughs) criminal directors. Yeah, there we go. No, um, yeah, so this comes from them, and it stars Adam Sandler, who plays a jeweler in the Diamond District of New York. They're on, um, I forgot what street it was. I looked this up a while ago um, to try to find out. I think it's like, Fourth Fortieth Avenue. I don't know. I don't live. I don't live in New York, guys. I don't know what what street this is on. But he lives in the Diamond District. He operates there. He's um, this uh, this guy who is a compulsive gambler. He's a professional liar, uh, and he is also this this just a total complete loser. He's just a loser. He's just he's he's what they call a schlub. He he's just terrible kind of, at his job. Like he's terrible yeah. at his job. He he literally will take people's stuff and then and then bet things using them as collateral. Like he does that here with a character played by Lakeith Stanfield, who has employed him to keep all of his really expensive watches in his safe. And at one point he discovers, yeah, most of them are not in there because he's loaned them out. Uh, yeah, this guy's just terrible at his job. He's and in deep with some bookies, including one played by uh, Eric Bogosian. Um, and he decides one day he's going to bet a, a gratuitous amount of money on professional basketball player Kevin Garnett. Uh, circa 2012, Garnett plays himself here during the last few years of his uh, of his career because he's retired now. But, uh, but he was playing in 2012 for the Boston Celtics. And uh, he has a few games, few games coming up, and uh, Howard wants him to uh, uh, believes that he will win, and further believes that when he gets into, um, uh, when he comes into possession of a of a black opal, rare black opal from Ethiopia, whose miners found it um, at the expense, by the way, I, I don't know if you notice this, at the expense of a man who has a really horrible leg injury. So right from the beginning, this this opal's. Not a gift; it's a curse, and um, this causes uh, Sandler to make a bunch of really desperate moves that are destructive, uh, uh, um, destructive to the maximum degree. Uh, he's also in hot water with his wife Dina, played by Idina Menzel. He is um, uh, cheating on her with a mistress, played by Julia Fox, in her first performance in a movie. Um, yeah, this movie is crazy, and the Safties kind of keep it at this really, really high pitch of insane intensity. Never stops, like 1917, but maybe even to uh, a more stressful degree. Um, this movie is pretty much entirely dependent on its ma- on on maintaining that, and also on casting its main character because this is a man, uh, and our friend Mark actually kind of said this really well um even in or maybe it was uh yeah i think it was yeah i think it was him who was saying this but basically even in his comedy work sandler works on this level of guy of a guy who has a lot of rage um and this is a character who is very loud very very loud this is a loud movie and it keeps and it keeps that going with this with this character who just does not stop trying to talk his way out of the um, 
uh, out of the situations in which he gets himself. And so you kind of feel for him because he does have this clear addiction problem, but you kind of also are in this state of kind of suspended horror at the amount of that, the number of bad decisions he makes. And a lot of people have been, you know, kind of talking about this movie in this context. They just, they don't like the fact that he makes all these mistakes. They, they are, they're hard pressed to feel any sort of empathy for him because of that. That's some of the backlash that's been, that's been happening since its release and for me, all of the, the film's effectiveness is right there with what this movie is doing in terms of defining uh, Howard as a character we want to follow. And it all pretty much rests on Sandler. Um, I think that this might be his best work. Uh, I really liked – I mean, well, loved. I think it's just as good of a movie. In fact, I love Punch Rock Love. I, I, it's a great movie. Um and Sandler's fantastic in it. And he did fantastic work in Spanglish and Funny People. And he's done really good work in Meyerowitz stories over, over the years. Um, but I think that this is his best work. I, he's working on this, this level of just complete um, – he just basically channels all of his impulses as an actor, which are often – to play roles broadly, uh, let's just say it. I mean, in, in his worst performances, to play roles broadly, and with as much of a weird voiced annoyance as possible. Uh, just think of "That's My Boy" or something like that, where he adopts this accent that nobody needs to hear with their ears. Uh, here, he does the same thing, but it works for the character. It's a very, very, very strong accent. It's much stronger than his natural one. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of exaggeration in in the rhotic sounds, the the R sounds, that is just incredible to hear. Um, love love that, especially in combination with the sheer number of F words that, <laughs> that he's given to say, and that's something I'll get into in a second. But uh, but he's great. He just understands this character so well, and so does the movie, and so do the screenwriters and directors. I think that. Um, it was uh, it was it was incredible, and uh, the supporting cast is also great. Uh, Kevin Garnett can't just play himself; he's he's got to play a version of himself. He does it really well. It's probably automatically the best performance from a from a basketball player uh, ever given. And yes, I include Michael Jordan in a, in Space Jam, although I do like him a lot in that movie. Um, and then uh, you have Julia Fox, really good here. Uh, this is this is quite the first performance from her. Our friend Mark was saying it. Uh, she first kind of takes on the character as kind of the character of the uh, the girlfriend, you know, the mistress. She's just a typical mistress, and then she becomes a full fledged character by the end. Uh, you, she's probably the closest thing to a moral center <laughs> in this movie. Really, it's either her or Judd Hirsch as this character named Gooey, uh, who I think I think is um, is Howard's father-in-law. Pretty sure that's the relationship there. And um, uh, he plays his, this guy who takes over and um, places a bet on the behalf of Howard in a really important uh, auction. Best scene in the movie. The movie. The the scene in the movie where I really forgot to breathe. Um, 
And uh, let's see who else. Oh, yeah, Eric Bogosian, also excellent. There's something that he's doing that's more than just being kind of the um, the shakedown master. He's There's a sadness uh, to Arno, is his character's name, who um, uh, the, the, there's a sadness to him that is just kind of commenting on the insanity of, uh, of Howard's decisions. He really sells that. Um, particularly because he stays quiet a lot in this movie, and it's uh, really interesting. Keith Williams Richards uh, plays the other bookie here, a guy named Phil. Really terrifying performance, um, you know. And then you have the, like these actors who come in for smaller roles, like Lakeith Stanfield uh, is impressive. He's not in the movie a whole lot, but he's impressive. The Weekend comes in to whatever degree he comes in, um, and kind of crosses paths as himself. Uh, Circa 2012, right before he really broke out, still has the hair thing going, um, even though he shaved it off since then. Uh, really need to see that. Um, and he does he does pretty good. He makes he makes the mistake of trying to make advances toward Julia <laughs> in one scene, and it's right in the middle of this whole mess for for Howard. And um, yeah, I just. I love the cast, and this is one of those that just feels like a Sidney Lumet film from the 70s. It's got that kind of energy, maybe even, maybe even, you know, to a to a greater degree than some of those movies that that Lumet made. Um, but man, this movie is just it just works, and you know, we talked about it. It was on our top tens. It was my number four, Chase's number five, and um, you know, certainly among. Uh, Mark's 11 through 15, kind of, if he had chosen those. So it's fantastic, and it's fantastically well put together. The cinematography here is kind of a departure, actually, for its uh, cinematographer. It's Darius Kanji, who has done a lot of quieter work. He, he did Midnight in Paris for Woody Allen. He shot um, uh, the last few James Gray movies, except for uh, Ad Astra. He shot um, The Immigrant and Lost City of Z. All very different work, and this is extremely different because this is – gritty grimy it's right there in the in the thick of it in um in the uh the in new york and it's uh just excellent truly uses color in a in a really memorable way especially in the club scenes that we see here uh the color blue the color red really stick out and kanji is just he's he's one of the the modern masters too right there with um with lubeski and uh and Deacons, he, he really knows his stuff. Um, the editing, which is actually done by one of the Safties and Bronstein, uh, is just does not stop. Um, but I think it is actually important to note that there are half-breaths here where we are able to get these little moments of stabilizing calm. There are phone calls where the, the soundtrack kind of quiets. It's just Sandler talking, maybe even whispering in one scene on the phone. Um yeah, it's just, it's, it's great. And, um, it's great to have that because it does, like I said, it does stabilize you just a little bit so you can catch your breath and then it goes right back into the fray with this insane plot that just spirals out of control, um, and ends in the only way it can end. You know, it's, it's a bunch of insanity, but it isn't just one note, you know, always grim or always, uh, shrill or always one simple thing it's there's notes here and i think that they're they're playing the notes really well even if they're favoring the ones that are the loudest um 
you know, it's not a subtle movie in any way, but it is nuanced about Howard's problems. Uh, and I think that in that way, it really reminded me of kind of an examination of, di- of addiction on the level of something like shame um, or or some of these other movies that have come out this year, like The Souvenir, which has an element of addiction to it. And um, I just think that it just works so well. The cast, the production, um, I think that they shot this in like, I think, I think Adam Sandler said it was like 35 days or something. It's just over a month, I know. And that's insane to me. Just really is just people working hard, hustling to do this in the best way. And it's just, it's just incredible. And, um, yeah, I, I love, 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 love this movie. I don't have a single problem with it. I don't have a single hang up. I think it makes every single choice with a real just fastidiousness of, of understanding what's got to come next after that. And like I said, ends the only way that a story like this could end. Um, it's both inevitable and perfect, and it's just fantastic. And I just – I loved every every single thing. I've seen it twice. Uh, I know that, Chase, you've seen this, what, like four or five times by now? Uh, <laughs> so, only twice as well, but uh, at least I know I have – you know, access to it to where, right. like, if I'm if I'm thinking, hey, you I'm in an uncut Jim's mood, let me just pop it in. Yes, and this is one of those things where I, I, you know, it is it is stressful, but you and I agree that there is a way that we could think about being in an uncut Jim's mood. It's one of those. It's one of those. Movies. Ironically, it, it there is an addiction to this. Like yes, you you exactly. just want to keep watching it, and you're just like, yes. I I don't know what it is, but I just want to. It's also, I mean, it's a long movie, but it doesn't feel long. It's no. it's two hours and fifteen minutes, but it feels like ninety because of how quickly it goes. And then you're just like, oh no, it's over now, and you and you want to watch it again. And it's just, it's one of those. And uh, I'm definitely gonna be buying this on Blu-ray. I hope you know, uh, A24 has pulled out 4K once for her for Hereditary. I think that was the only time. And I really hope that they do do some 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 kind of 4K thing for a movie from last year because he had such a great run with them. I kind of hope it's this one, honestly. I really do. I think that you know they've already released the Lighthouse and they. Didn't I, I think they that. will um, after I kind of open up uh, my portion of this review because mm-hmm. I was looking up the numbers while you were talking. Currently, right now, and it's still playing in theaters. It's at 31 million. Okay, and for a 24, that's huge. See what I so I know that they do this in terms of and even Blu-ray releases, believe it or not, in terms of what the movies make. So if they don't make more than a million in theaters uh, domestically, then they don't get a Blu-ray release. Um, I think that Hereditary really killed at the box office for them, at least, and so that's why you know it was certainly kind of hitting a number of. We're gonna go ahead and do a 4K release for this because it feels like we could make money on it. And that's ultimately what they have to do. Um, usually, their movies make less than 31 million, <laughs> so that's really good. That's a really good amount, and hopefully, that means that they're gonna do that because man, these colors would really pop. It's some of my favorite cinematography of the year. Um, I think it's I think it's beautiful. Um, in a like I said, a really grungy way, and uh, yeah, so A plus for me. I'll just say I, I think it's I'm I'm giving it the full plus. I feel it, feeling in my bones. I love this movie. I think it's uh, I think it's a tremendous piece of work. So yeah, a plus for me. I know that that's probably shocking, but my top five or six pretty much all got a pluses. I think 
And uh, yeah, this is one of them. So there you go. A plus for me. Chase, take it away. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. I, uh, spoiler alert, A plus for me as well. But because um, we, we gave our kind of like mini reviews on it when we did our top 10 list, but now we get to fully like geek out on it. So this is my final, and this is Joel's final plea too, but this is our final plea to make you go watch this because, and we're, we're going to be saying this until the end of time, uh, until it's universally accepted, but it never is for stu- for people like Robert Pattinson, um, Kristen Stewart, Adam Sandler. There's just some people that it doesn't matter which movies that they're in, they always go, oh, that's the grown-ups guy. I won't watch anything because he's terrible. It's like, well, he does other stuff. You should probably check it out. It's the same thing with Pattinson and Stewart. Oh, those are the Twilight people. Okay, have you seen anything that they've done post-Twilight? No, I haven't. Well, then you can't, you can't say that. Because I, I was in that mindset when you know I saw the Twilight movies. I'm like, these, these performances are terrible. These actors are terrible. But... You can evolve from your career. And now I've done a full 180, and I can go, these are two of the best uh, working right now. And it's the same thing with Sandler. I, I've said this from the very beginning. And even back to like when Joel and I were kids, um, I, don't, I don't care how stupid some people think these movies are, but Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore are two of my favorite comedies ever made just because I was at the right age when they came out. They were funny then. They're funny now. They just he he has a way with comedy and, and and people know that, but when stuff like Punch Drunk Love comes out or Rain Over Me or Spanglish, it throws people off. And when you read some of the uh, audience reviews for Uncut Gems on Rotten Tomatoes, it's baffling to me. They're just like, oh, I wanted to see this because of Adam Sandler, but oh my god, um, this film was just so stressful, like. Why would he make a movie like it's like he makes movies like this all the time. It's just that this one is getting the biggest push um, out of any non-comedy he's ever been in. And it's because of A24's confidence in it. Um, so I just wanted to say that right off the top. If you have hangups over Adam Sandler, I, I don't know why. Like, yeah, I get it. He makes some really bad movies. Um, I'm not going to sit here and defend the guy over stuff like Pixels. So I get you. But watch Punch Drunk Love. Watch this one. Like, you will be surprised. And it's these types of performances and these types of movies that when certain actors subvert expectations and they blow you away, it is one of the best feelings in the world. It's like with Pattinson. Um, Speaking of the Safdie brothers, if you watch stuff like Good Time, it just blows your mind that, yeah, that's the kid from Twilight. But that is a good thing, though. So... I just want to get uh, get on my soapbox just for a little bit and just uh, this is our final plea. It's our last time we're going to talk about this movie, but please give it a shot if uh, you want to see something different from Sandler. Um, yes, it is a very hard R movie, but uh, if you can stomach all that, then I think you'll really enjoy this. So the thing with the Safdie brothers, and I, I've recognized it ever since I saw Heaven Knows What, which seems like 20 years ago at this point. But with like Heaven Knows What and Good Time and Now Uncut Gems, they have a certain style to them. They're very energetic. They induce anxiety. They like to have this panic attack filmmaking that they are, are you know akin to, and it, it works for them. It works for the stories that they're telling. It works for the environment that they set these stories in. It You can feel the dirt and the grime and the sweat in the cities that they film these movies in 
which makes these characters in this whole story feel way more tangible and uh, more real than if it was just on some, you know, uh, soundstage or whatever. So they have their pulse on this type of filmmaking that just seems really authentic and gritty and dirty and just in your face. But it makes these characters in the story, uh, like I said, seem more realistic and stick out a little bit more than, um, uh, you know, maybe another film or whatever, but they, they know how to make a film straight up. Um, yeah. Is there a certain style like, like super, um, stressful? Absolutely. But, the fact that you can make a two hour and 15 minute long movie feel like an hour and a half in like such a breeze, that's a testament to their direction. They know how to um, adapt certain energy into certain scenes. Or like Joel said, when they pull back a little bit and we get to have a, a, a tad bit of a breather and then it gets back into the fray again. And so um, they know how to strike that balance. And, um, you know, all the way from the screenwriting to the editing and to the directing, because, um, if not one, then both of them are involved in all three stages of that. They um, they have their, like I said, they have their pulse on it. And they know how to, um, you know, edit. Uh, Benny knows how to edit a, a certain scene a certain way. And Josh and Benny know how to write certain dialogue for certain characters in the screenwriting. And, um, you know, with the directing, they, they know their overall vision. It's a really great testament to... Uh, see them be a jack of all trades and just executing every single category that they uh, attach their names to. Um, and also, side note, um, I know this has nothing to do with Uncut Gems, but good time. Um, they're also great actors, too, because Benny is in that movie as uh, Robert's um, brother. It, it, I would even argue it's even better than Robert Pattinson's performance. It's just, it, it's such an unexpected turn from them because you don't expect them to be actors, but then they just, they surprise you. So, um, once again, they are a jack-of-all-trade. Okay, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Adam Sandler. Um, I think the biggest hero of this entire movie is the casting department. Um, all the way from Sandler to the uh, ancillary characters to uh, people they pulled off the street to uh, Kevin Garnett, Julia Fox, The Weeknd, um, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Adina Menzel, like the casting department is without a doubt the the biggest star of this entire movie. Because with people's complaints of Howard, played by Adam Sandler, is, oh, he's very unlikable, or oh, why would we sit two hours in a movie to see a guy fumble all the time? And my argument with that is this. Say they cast Joe Pesci in the role. Not Joe Pesci now, um... You know, like Goodfellas Joe Pesci. Uh, you know, if he was cast in this role, delivering the same type of energy, dialogue, what have you, I don't think we would feel any type of sympathy for him. It's not, it has nothing to do with Joe Pesci as a person. He seems like a pretty nice dude in real life, but there's a certain ambiance to how Joe Pesci delivers his stuff that makes us go, I just don't really know if I can get behind this guy, even if... There is redemption at the end of this guy's life. I don't know if I'm on board with it. He just seems like a pretty bad person. The key to this movie is Adam Sandler. You cast him in this role. Adam has a certain look to him. Where you can look at Adam. He can talk to you. He can gamble your money. He can do all this type of stuff and get away with it. But there's a certain 
charm to him. There's a certain likability to him. It's not all there 100%, but there's a sliver there. It's a sliver of hope. It's a sliver of um, redemption. It's a sliver of uh, forgiveness. There's there's that sliver to his character that makes us want to follow him. So even though he stumbles all the time in this movie, screws people over, cheats on his wife, gambles other people's money, um, lies to people, does all this, there is that small amount there that makes us go, what if, what if he could turn himself around and surprise us as a character? Because people can be redeemed. People can be forgiven. And it's because Adam Sandler's casting that makes us want to do that. Now, like what Joel said, the way this movie ends, Howard had it coming to him. I'll just put it that way. Because he, he doesn't learn. And that's what, there, there is a, an underbelly of sadness to that. Because you know that maybe deep down he could have been reached. But it was just too late at that point. And so uh, I, I just think it's it's an electric performance. It's just It goes at 1,000 miles per hour. And yeah, he stumbles. Yeah, he's kind of a bad guy. But Adam Sandler makes us, makes us believe just like that 1% of Howard could, could be reached and maybe he could be turned. But the addiction is just so heavy that there is that sadness to it as well. So, yeah, it's a very layered performance. Um, I'm kind of with Joel. Um, I love him in Punch Drunk Love, but listen, we've been waiting since 2002 for him to top it. I think he topped it um, 17 years later. So uh, until he can do another one uh, like this, I I think this is the best one that he has done to date. Um, Funny enough, uh, they were looking at Sasha Baron Cohen. They were looking at Jonah Hill. So they were tapping into comedic actors to do this role, which leads me to believe what I just said. They want to find people that, yeah, screw up and can do and perform this as the character, but have this kind of look and feeling to them that maybe they can be saved. And so I, I found that kind of interesting. The supporting cast is also fantastic. Julia Fox is a sensation. And if you go on uh, the social media right now, she is absolutely loved by everybody. Um, A very striking performance, uh, as what Joel said, the moral center, which is funny because when you are introduced to her, she is the, um, you know, the mistress uh, to Adam Sandler's um, marriage. And, you know, that that could turn anyone off right at the start. It's like, oh, really, we're going to follow this character. But she she makes that character her own, and there is a certain, like I said, or like what Joel said, like a moral center to her towards the end that was so unexpected. You're like, that's just great writing. Like, seriously, like she's introduced as a mistress, and then by the end, you're just like, okay, maybe, maybe she's like one of the better people in this entire movie. Like, it's just kind of crazy. But, yeah, absolutely uh, great debut from her. Kevin Garnett, man. Who would have thought that this guy could act? <laughs> um, he does very well throughout the entire movie, but then there's that one scene at the end that's just like, okay, Gardner, I see what you got. Um, now, he's not going to ever act again. This is probably a one-and-done situation, but for what we got, it, he was great. Lakeith Stanfield is all... I, I don't even need to talk about Lakeith because he could be in any movie, and he, he he's just always... He, I've never seen him in a bad uh, performance like he always delivers 120 percent um and so yeah he, he's all he he has a great kind of yin and yang relationship with adam sandler um 
that once again, you would never expect Adam interacting with any of these people um, in real life. But when you see him in a movie, it just, it just makes sense. Like it just, everyone was casted so perfectly in this movie. It kind of just blows my mind. So once again, the star of the movie is the casting department. Um, the way uh, I agree with Joel, the way it looks, the cinematography is just uh, uh, really well done. Um, like I said, capturing this kind of certain gritty, kind of sweaty atmosphere of New York that's, um, like I said, really tangible. And I think the the other uh, key component to this that I really enjoyed is the uh, the sound design and the music. It's just the the music. Totally for totally forgot to mention the score is awesome. The, yeah, the score is like. It's like your soul left your body, and like you're experiencing like this ethereal like lift out of your seat. Like it's so weird because it plays a lot with like 80 synth. It plays a lot with experimental stuff, um, very angelic stuff. When it gets to the gym, uh, when people look at it, it's yeah, just, it's really it's a really interesting score, but it, it just works for the type of flow that the Safties kind of built for them. And uh, it's you definitely remember it because the way the movie ends, it picks up on that kind of like angelic uh, score a little bit until it gets to the credits, and it kind of leaves you in a state of awe and like kind of relief at the same time. Like it's just it's really well executed, and of course the the sound design of and the mixing of people talking over one another, having the cars go off in the background, you know, uh, people honking and. I'm sure, you know, sirens were played at the same time, really kind of capturing that busy New York lifestyle. It's crazy um, how much detail uh, was put into this. I'm kind of with Joel. I have no issues with this. Um, I think uh, my top five films of the year, which this is, sits at number five, I will classify as all A pluses. I think these will be, the, the until I see a hidden life, these are my set five of 2019 that I think will re- be remembered uh, years down the road and hailed as uh, classics of that year. Um, time will tell for sure, but I, 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 I believe in my gut that these are the five that will do it, and Uncut Gems is one of them. A-plus all day. Now, uh, like we said at the top, this is a very hard R movie. I realize that this is not going to be for everybody, but Joel and I, we will praise this thing to the highest regard. A lot of other people have praised it to the highest regard, um, people in the New York critic circle, uh, you know, like best picture, best director, best screenplay. It's like this movie's getting uh, acclaim, but just be warned if hard R stuff, bunch of language, and you know this type of stressful um, situation in filmmaking is not for you. Then yeah, probably stay away from it. But if you want to take a chance and broaden your horizons a little bit on an Adam Sandler non uh, comedy. I think this is a really great one for you to enjoy. And if you enjoy this movie, then go check out the other Safety Brothers movies um, with Robert Pattinson, like Good Time. It's just they have a unique style, and I just I can't wait to see what they do next. But yeah, Uncut Gems, man, Joel, I just I, I love it so much. And this will be the last time we talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and I did want to mention like the score is just fantastic. Is this is Daniel? I think his name is LePayton. He's also known as Oniotrix Point Never, and he did the screen, the uh, score for uh, Good Time as well. Great, great work. Uh, unpredictable, kind of unclassifiable almost as its own piece of music. It's really fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, and also should get into you know, we're telling people to see it. 
and they should definitely see it. They should also be aware of something about it. <laughs> uh, this is one of is literally, if you look on Wikipedia, one of the most vulgar movies ever made. Um, right. So in- I'm I'm basically like when I when I when I set that up, Joel, I'm basically speaking to people like my mom who does not like language right. in a movie and it's just like right. yeah, you should probably stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing though. I think that maybe there's a chance that people who don't like listening to to that word and it's said here 408 times according to Wikipedia, it's the seventh most ever, fifth most for a strictly um uh, narrative feature. And so there's a lot of them and, and it, and it, you know, they unravel over only 130 minutes. So it's about three a minute or, or on average three a minute. But I will say that there's something that the Safties do. I think that is a little different than other directors who, who use this word a lot, like Scorsese and Tarantino um, and uh, John Dahl and Rounders, which is a movie that should be on that list of, on, on that list of, on, media but isn't for some reason uh which i think is that he doesn't have the characters here at least a lot of the time there are a few characters who do this but he doesn't have the characters use the word as a weapon it's just a which is usually the the case because of course the the whole point of cursing is that it's harsh it's there's a harshness to it and that's what makes it taboo this i think is uh there's it's just a feature of the sentences most of the time just something that they say it's just part of their vocabulary so it's there's a lot of it i think that pretty quickly you'll you'll stop noticing it though uh because it again it just kind of bleeds into the story and um yeah because this is this is this world you know i've heard this about the, the diamond district that it is like this if you just walk around the street and go into these shops this is what you're going to hear so if you can you can kind of understand that these are how people that this is how people talk then uh, and you're and you're nervous about it after hearing that, just just uh, just give it a just give it a shot. Um, and even if it's the only time that you do that, <laughs> you know, for this particular movie, um, if this if you don't get along with this, maybe you don't see Casino, which has around this many, uh, just over more time, because um, it's three hours. Rounders has a lot too. So yeah. Anyway, it's got that kind of vibe of of naturalistic vulgarity that i think is is pretty powerful can be pretty powerful in terms of dialogue and um and uh yeah so anyway other than that we're just saying definitely go see it um it is it is a ride and it's one of the best movies of the year um on every front so all right folks that's it that's our episode that's episode 308 next week like i mentioned we'll be talking about a hidden life and and we'll also be talking about um just mercy which is the new courtroom drama with um michael b jordan jamie fox and brie larson and uh if you want to find my writing it's on joelonfilm.com if you want to follow me on twitter it's at real joel copeling that's my name pre- uh, preceded by r-e-e-l little pun for you as a treat um and then uh my daily progress is on letterboxd if you just search my name search it and you'll find that i'm going to be a lot more um uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very active over there. I'll just say. So, um, yeah, that's, that's where I am. Chase, where are you? Good, sir. Yes. If you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at real chase Lee. If you guys would like to subscribe to this you know, podcast feed, if you're new, uh, iTunes, cast box, wherever you, um, 
get your podcast from. Please subscribe to the feed, like this episode, share it, um, and uh, spread the word about your favorite movie podcast. We would really appreciate it. But yeah, that is where you can find me on all the interwebs of sorts. And of course, follow the podcast on Twitter at Real Me and Pagas. This has been episode 308. As Joel stated, next week, 309 will be Just Mercy and a Hidden Life. You will also get a mini review uh, of Underwater from me because uh, let's uh, throw up the congratulations and the the you know the happy stuff. Uh, this is the first uh, screening of the year. Yay! Uh, um, <laughs> underwater. Can't wait. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I you know it is what it is. Um, but yes, yeah, so that yeah, it, gonna... it looks it looks fine basically. It, it, it does look fine. It is a little <laughs> awkward to see T.J. Miller back in a movie. Right. Um, it's just because it's been so long since they shot it. It, it was exactly. shot before any of that stuff blew up, and now they've got probably shareholders or whatever people, investors who want it to come out, and so it's got to come out right. at some point. <laughs> it's uh, it's right. uh, the first screening of the year. It's the first awkward screening of the year, and it's the first Disney release of the year. Uh, so uh, that, that'll be fun. Um, but yes, uh, that a mini review of Underwater, and then of course next week's episode. But that will do it for this episode, guys. I am Chase. That is Joel over there. You guys are awesome. And uh, just whenever you're listening to this, have a great day, great night. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. Adios. Bye. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.